You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that we talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that. And you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread on that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, it is Pastor Kearns, but it's not Pastor Bruss. In his place, we have Pastor Oakry. Pastor Oakry, it is great to have you on board here at the Pluck Chicken Podcast once again. It's good to be back. You know, this summer has been one that I thought that we could make podcast after podcast after podcast, and I'll be doggone between vacations and our own congregations. We have just been busy beavers this summer, haven't we? We have, but it's good to be back in the swing of things. I think sometimes the good order of the confirmation year, we'll call it. Uh, makes it so that we can actually schedule ourselves a little bit more. Well, good. You know, I've been listening to sermons all summer long. And, uh, man, Pastor Oakery, I'll just I'll just put it out there for you. These guys are saying nothing. Why is that? Why is the American Evangelical Church? I mean, it's always been doctrine light. But, my goodness, now it's like completely devoid of doctrine. I haven't studied this, and so this is mere speculation from my point of view. But I think there's a couple things here. One, when you go down the path of doctrine light, the first generation knows their doctrine but but waters it down. The second generation has that watered-down doctrine. Well, how are they going to hand it down in an even more watered-down form? So I think we're really experiencing that. They've watered it down so much that it has become devoid of anything useful and really anything that you couldn't go to Barnes and Noble and find in a self-help section just maybe with less God in it in, in Barnes and Noble and I think the other thing is that these pastors have convinced themselves that this is all that their people can handle and which is a farce it is because we know what scripture does to people it grabs hold of people and it is rich and wonderful. But we've seen this in previous sermons, too, where these people actively want to keep things shallow. Well, when you actively keep things shallow, it's like, well, how shallow can we get? Because now we're just in a, in a barely filled mud puddle. And one thing about Lutheranism, and we stand here 
because it's very it's challenging to stand here but we do because we say we're going to be in the full depths of god's word and we're going to want you to come and swim in the deep end with us and we'll help you but it's way scarier <laughs> and so you come in and what i have been seeing and i think we're all seeing this in some way or another is that when we encounter people who have been in this environment for a long time and we start talking about the richness of scripture and we we show our chops i see people being very intrigued and saying to themselves wait there's more than the kiddie pool right Right. where's this been my whole life i've been in church my whole life and i've never even come to understand what you're telling me and we know this because mature people don't stay in the splash pad uh when you go to the pool the kids are in the splashy area and the adults are in some depth of water because that's where it's actually enjoyable for them. That's the key Lutheran argument that this is actually where you want to be and quit listening to what they're trying to tell you about that. It, they're, not, they're not telling you the truth when they say this is enough for you. So let me ask you this. Uh, are you familiar with what's called the dream team. Thankfully, no. You have no idea what the dream team is? No. The dream team in a lot of evangelical non-denoms is the group of volunteers who work in various areas of the church, break down, set up, children's ministry, parking attendants, working in the uh, to make coffee, all of that. That's the dream team. Oh, so just the congregation being the congregation? No, this is a this is a an upper level. Right. When you when you're serving, you move from JV to varsity because service is the main thing that matters, not receiving. Correct. Right. I mean because saved people serve people. Right, at the appropriate time and place. Maybe maybe not when we're supposed to be receiving from our Lord and Savior. Uh, and, but it's a challenge, right? Because we, well, it is interesting because, I mean, I, I understand what you're talking about and you do see the high level of discipline and training that they put into this. You know, sometimes in the Lutheran church, we're just like shoving them in and, and we're like, Hey, we've got a gap to fill. We have a need and let's fill it. And what, what I've seen in evangelical churches, you know, you've got the guys with the, sometimes with the light sticks and all the cones set up and you're thinking, man, this is a production and there must have been a lot of energy put into making sure this runs very smoothly. And that's a great thing, but it's not the thing. I kind of enjoy the the mess that the Lutheran church can be because I, I honestly think it's a, we're not trying to create an experience. We're just kind of just saying, this is who we are and we're here for word and sacrament. And even the people who are volunteering, we stop what we're doing because we're all here for that. That's the great blessing to me is that there's no one whose job it is to be outside the sanctuary when the service is happening. And the times when people are moving, like say during communion or when we're receiving the offering, right? those are the times when the word isn't being preached and the sacrament's not being administered. And so we create this environment where it's like, yes, receive from the Lord. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a different philosophy, I think. Well, I wanted to tell you is that even though the sermons that I have heard this summer have been just so vapid, I mean, just, I mean, I wouldn't even say cotton candy. I mean, the, you, it's just, there's just nothing there. 
But there's always the emphasis on the dream team. I want to let you hear a couple of examples. All right. And then he goes off in the wilderness for 40 days where he doesn't eat a thing. He's fasting and his faith is tested. And when that's over, he begins to preach about the kingdom of God. And so we look at this moment as he begins preaching. He begins building his his dream team, his disciple team, which pop quiz number two, how many disciples did Jesus recruit? Say if you know it. Twelve. So you guys are like, I'm not, I think it's twelve. If you thought twelve, you are right. So he recruits twelve, winds up with a bunch more than twelve, but he recruits these twelve disciples as he begins his ministry. And so these disciples are his dream team. I mean, here at LifePoint, we have a team that we call the dream team. They're our volunteers. We could not do what we're doing now without our dream team. Like Porter's Neck, you don't exist without your dream team. Leland, you don't exist here at Pine Valley. It's hundreds of people that, that have said, I want to be all in. I want to be a part of what God is doing around this community. And they use their gifts and they serve. And Jesus' disciples were his dream team. I think a lot of us believe God is just out there ready to throw lightning bolts on our head for everything we do wrong. But can I tell you, if you're going after God, he is faithful. He is just to reward those who run after him. To go, let me just tell you, I want you to know God is a good God. It's not just a song. He's a good, good father. It's not just a song. It is the truth. It is what God believes in you and what he believes in me. He can't wait to reward you if you take one step in the direction of God. Some of you are like, man, I want to join a, a city group, but I, 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 we call them city group, but a small group. And you're saying, man, I just wish I could join a city group, but I, I don't know if it's the right direction. Listen, he rewards those who take a step in the right direction. Some of you are like, I really want to serve on the serve team. I want to be on the dream team. Can I tell you, just take a step in the right direction. And I don't know if there's any dream teamers in the house today, but if you're a dream teamer, how many can say, man, God has changed my life through the dream team? Come on. Guys, I want to tell you, we got a community that needs to see Jesus. Sure, they need sermons, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to work, and we've got great churches that are going to preach great sermons, but they need to see sermons. They need to see people rolling up their sleeves, serving day in, day out, being a part of making the magic happen, making the church effective. I believe the church will only be as effective as its people are active. And I just want to ask a tough question to every single one of you. Those of you joining online, those of you in person, I just want to ask you this question. You answer this for yourself in your own quietness of your heart. But if everyone in this church served others to the same degree that you do, would we be more or less effective fulfilling the call of God on our church? Because I see way too many sitting and way too few serving. Guys, if we're going to follow the ways of Jesus, we're going to begin to serve other people. We're going to step out of ourselves. We're going to get over ourselves. We're going to get over our excuses. We're going to begin to roll up our sleeves. We're going to look for opportunities. We're going to serve. We've got, guys, we've got cities to reach. We've got communities that need to see and hear the truth of Jesus. We've got people to serve, services to launch, campuses to get going. None of this is possible without an army of people saying, my life has been changed. I've been saved. And if saved people serve people, then it's time for me to step up and step out. Whether that's serve days to weekend services, this church does not exist 
without our dream team. That's what we call our volunteer team. They're the dream team. They make the dream a reality. I would like to do something right now across all of our campuses. If you serve in any capacity on our dream team, whether that's you know, making the weekend happen or a serve day or, or maybe during the week, would you stand to your feet right now? And could we just put our hands together for those that are a part of the team? You are a part of the team. I want you to just stand across our campuses. If you're, if you're somebody that serves, stay on your feet. Stay on your feet because I want to speak something over you. What did you think of that? I think that when you devoid Christ from your message, you get into a very messy situation. And so a few things. Um, in the first recording, what we see is a very typical thing, which is you're kind of bebopping through a little bit of scripture. Clearly he's talking about the temptation of Jesus and, and flowing out of that in whatever context. But then... You're like, and then he gathers his dream team. And you're like, well, okay, well, that's not biblical. Like, wh wh why are we using that language, right? Because they're called disciples. And that's meaningful because that means they're learners. And later, those same disciples who were learners will become apostles. Right. I mean, they're not just parking cars in the parking lot and making coffee. Th this is what the faith is built upon. Right. It's the and apostolic witness. Amen. And and there's a and there's obviously an understanding because when they select a disciple to replace Judas, they're like, we need one who's shown faithfulness and and discernment, who's a witness, those kinds of things. Well, witness from the time of Jesus's baptism all the way to his resurrection. And right. there was only two that made the cut. Right. And so this is a big deal. And I what I'm saying is is he's misconstruing what a disciple is. But he's but you see what he's doing. I mean, he's he's twisting uh what Jesus did with his disciples and somehow or another making that to be people who volunteer in the church. Now, listen, before you continue, I just want to say I mean, these sermons are post-COVID. These churches shut down and went completely online. What happened in regard to that is the same thing that happened in your church, the same thing that happened in my church is is that people started developing new habits and they dropped out of church. I mean, certainly we're not seeing the numbers that we had, even though we never shut down, you guys kept going. We're not seeing the numbers now that we saw before COVID. There's less folks. And in these congregations this same thing has happened. And so they're trying to replace their workforce, their their labor force. But I'm sure it's worse for them too because... They, they demand so much. They demand so much and their extended shutdown, I think, left a greater opportunity for those bad habits to form or for people to say something as like, I'm just as happy watching this from my home right. as I am going to some of these satellite locations. Right. right. And so I'm sure they're trying to work it up. And so the third one, the last one was interesting. Same guy, you said different sermon. So he's he's just beating that drum. 
And what did we get? We got the we got the altar call music. Yep. We got the altar call speech, but he wasn't calling people to baptism. He was calling people to serve on the dream team. And he, I, and you can see the logic. You're like, well, if this works to bring people into the church, this should work just as effectively to bring people into this realm of service that we need. And I cut out what he said because it was just so crazy. If I recall, and this is months ago when I heard this sermon, you remember how he said, I'm going to speak this over you? Yeah. It was something from like Dwight Eisenhower or something oh, like that. I mean, it was Teddy Roosevelt. You, you know, it's like, what? What in the world? We're, we're going to stand up. We're going to acknowledge these people. And to everybody else who's seated, really, it's not be more like Christ. It's be like these people around you and serve on a dream team as well. Right, because that's how this church has learned to function. And they're, they're either going to replace their dream team and continue to function that way, or they're going to have to be creative and find a new way to function. But they're in a interesting transition space right now but it is to me very dark to put all of this pressure on people to serve saved to serve is not the best slogan (laughs) there's a kernel of truth in it and we 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 have to acknowledge that but this is what happens so often in the evangelical church is that you get jesus but then there's a switcheroo that happens we want you to have Jesus, and now that you have Jesus, we don't ever want to talk about him again because you need to be doing the thing that's doing, right? And this is what my wife calls the evangelical treadmill. And, and they just, if whatever you give, they just keep turning up the, the speed or they keep in, increasing the incline, whatever it is, until you're literally exhausted and broken and you slide off and your faith is left in tatters. Is this going to happen to everybody? No, of course not, but it happens to many. So... The question is, what should service look like in the Lutheran church or in God's church? Because, well, it's the same thing. (laughs) This is intriguing to me because this Sunday we're preaching on James chapter 2. And when I I saw that, I said to my secretary, maybe it'd be a good day to preach on the Old Testament. (laughs) (laughs) But And just just to give a, a little bit of an explanation, because when you gather in the Lutheran church, there's an Old Testament lesson, there's an epistle lesson, and there is a New Testament lesson. And many times the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to one another a lot better than the epistle. Sometimes it does, sometimes it does not. Right. And uh, but just if there's anybody new who is listening, I just wanted to yeah. explain a little bit what you were saying there. And in our current reading, which is called the Revised Lectionary, I don't, I don't want to bore people with this, but this is we're doing through readings of the epistle. So you're right, they... They hardly ever line up exactly. Although you can always almost you can almost always find connection points. Correct, and and you do. So, but we have James, right? Faith without works is dead. That's right here in the midst of this text, and we have to wrestle with that. And it is absolutely true that the life of faith is lived out in works, and those works are done in service to the neighbor. We have a word for this. We call it vocation, and vocation really just means how we interact with each other in our human relationships, right? So you can't just say I'm doing good works if you're not dealing with other people because God clearly calls you to love your neighbor. But when we take Jesus and his forgiveness and set it to the side and say, okay, that's very nice, but this, that doesn't really have anything to say about your life of service. That's up to you. That's up to you finding something in yourself. Guess where my good works are? 
my good works aren't in myself. I don't find them in myself. I don't find the strength in myself. I don't find the will in myself. My good works are hidden in Christ. And that's the beauty of what scripture has to teach us on this is, oh, you're saying that when I come and receive from God generously what he would give me, I am now equipped by him with what he would give me to do the things that I'm supposed to do now. And it's so much better than this mixture of carrot. Let's praise the people who are doing the good work and the stick. And you're kind of a slug for not be standing up, <laughs> right? I mean, you're, and you you can feel it. Like you you hear this message and you feel both the the adulation and the shame, but in it, equal measure. And it was designed to be that way. Yes, and and I, that to me is gross <laughs> because you are a forgiven child of God, and that forgiveness is does is not stipulated upon. Uh, you doing good works. God's not like, I can't love you because you do bad works. He's like, I love you no matter what. Now, when we come to Christ and we're transformed by him, and this is a transformation, it touches our lives in a way that, you know, our faith doesn't just live in our head. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, it's there in my head, but it really resides in the heart. And the heart, you know, where, where is the, what does the heart do? It pumps blood into the entire body. And so it affects the entire body when the faith resides there. And certainly it is seen in our actions, but those actions aren't just serving on a dream team. It's reading God's word. It's praying for other people. It's taking care of your family outside of church, which is the other great evil here, is this idea that your service can only really be God's service if it's done in the church, and it's done in the shape that the church gives to it. Right, and if you recall the intro where we heard the guy say something about, uh, you're a leader, but I'm not called to be a CEO, I'm stuck in a dead-end job, and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is totally ignoring exactly what you're saying, which is vocation and just loving your neighbor. This is serving the Lord. Now, I would say as well, that the illustration or analogy that your wife uh, speaks to you about in regard to the uh, treadmill, well, it was something more than a treadmill. Well, the evangelical treadmill. Evangelical treadmill. This is the problem of the church uh, in that they're always, as you said, you know, ratcheting up that knob and making the speed faster and the incline higher. And when you say something like, I feel like I'm neglecting my family, Right. What will they say? Well, you just need to pray, and and that's your problem, right? No, it's an actual problem, right? And well, the Lord said, I mean, you know, uh, if you're going to go and bury your dead, you know, then what what good are you? Right. You know, you have to wrestle with those texts, absolutely. But and wait. if you set your hand to the plow, don't look back. I mean, even if it's your family who's calling you to turn around and come back to them. Right. But then he also says uh, you you have a fine way of exchanging uh, the, the commandments of God for the traditions <laughs> right, of man, right. such as dishonoring your father right, and your right, mother and right, things like that. Right. And, and, you know, w- what's wonderful about this, it doesn't feel wonderful, but it is wonderful, is that God, God and Christ particularly, is always putting us into tension. He's saying, yes, when you become a Christian, you're, you're in, right? You don't look back at your former life because that life is death and shadow and, and everything. But he also says, I've given you this rich life. And by, by you coming to me and me being everything to you, I add everything back to you. That's just not the promise of eternity, right? We're like, oh, yeah, well, I get all the good stuff when I get to heaven. But I ha- it, it has to stink here on earth. And the worse it stinks, 
the better it is. Maybe. I mean, people certainly suffer for the gospel. I don't deny that. It's scripture. It's in scripture everywhere. But there are also people that were richly blessed in the gospel. You can't tell me that Abraham wasn't a blessed man of God and, and, and he took his lumps, but he ended up a wealthy, happy man with a, with a, with a family and, and good things. Well, I'm thinking about Rahab. I mean, here's a, a woman who at one time was a harlot, even though she's called Rahab the harlot. By the time we see her in Joshua, she's left that lifestyle, but the, the moniker still remains. And my goodness, she becomes a, a grandmother of, of David? Right. Mentioned in Matthew 1 as an ancestor of, of our Lord? Yeah. Or even you think about Job, right? Uh, after all his trials and travails, sure. everything's added back to him. So what Jesus says, really what he's saying is, when you come and give everything to me, I'm going to give it back to you. And scripture's full of this, right? When, it, when we say in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over, mm. right? What's it saying? Like, what God fills me with is so much that I can't even contain it. And the wonderful thing is it doesn't get splashed onto the floor and wasted. It actually flows into other people's cups, as it were. So what we have to see here is that we need Jesus to be the people that we want to be. And what they're utterly devoid of here is Jesus and saying, Jesus is the one making this possible. His forgiveness, his mercy uh, because we forget, James says, faith without works is dead. And so we're just like, well, I got to do works. And it's like, your your faithless works are nothing. <laughs> and so really, you need the faith. And, and then say, in faith, who is God calling me to be? And that's such a richer question. Instead of me saying to you, this is who you need to be so that our program at this church can work. Sure. So what we're going to do now is we're going to listen to a sermon. And um, I don't think you're going to be very pleased with this sermon. Uh, he does mention the Dream Team a little bit later on. So that's why I've kind of put it in the, into this entire collection of uh, the emphasis being on the Dream Team. So uh, here we go. Pastor Jeff, he is an amazing man of God. It's an honor. It's, it's you have to hear this from me. Uh, it, it is an honor to get to know your staff, the leadership here. They are authentic. They're, they're people of God. They're pursuing the Lord. And they have a heart to see the, the city and the surrounding cities changed and transformed for Jesus Christ. I'm pumped up. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to see all that God wants to do in and through you. I believe that God has a plan for your life. I'm here on behalf of my pastors, Pastor Peter and Carolyn Haas, all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're a part of ARC, the Association of Related Churches. My, you, you, your church is a part of that as well. We were ARC Church Plant number 15, and my pastors helped lead at ARC. And so it's just an honor to be here. I'm a, I'm a good friend. I would say a great friend of Pastor Daryl. Can we give it up for Pastor Daryl? If you know him and you love him. I see you in the back. We're family, bro. We're fam I'm Italian. Last name's Puccini. We're Italian here. So we, we're family now. You're family for life. You are in the family. Can I show you a quick photo of my family? My wife, is she is so hot. I'd love to put this up. My wife there and my beautiful kids. Been married 19 years. Have two children. Just celebrated 19 years last week. Come on, we've been together 22 years. Just love my family. Okay, so Pastor Oakry, just so you know, this is always the same shtick that is always used slash played 
whenever there's a guest speaker at one of these evangelical non-denoms. You've got to highlight how wonderful their pastor is and get everybody to applaud. You've got to uh, say what an honor it is for you to be there in their midst with this great congregation. And then there is always the putting up of the picture of your smoking hot wife. I was just having a conversation with some members of the congregation and we were talking about how there was someone who said, some pastor before me at Calvary, who at one point said crap from the pulpit and that the congregation was shocked, right, by the lack of decorum. And I think I think it is a very worldly thing to say, to, to point at your wife and say, look at how hot she is. Your wife can be lovely and uh, beautiful. I, when you say she's hot, you're asking people to look at her and kind of take in her attractiveness by themselves. There's a misunderstanding of marriage there already, right? Like she's her beauty is for her husband and, and the husband's beauty is for her. And, and it is not meant to be shared. Now, we're not talking about putting her in a burqa and locking her away, but that's a very worldly way of talking about these things. And I think it does lack decorum. And when your leadership talks that way, what happens? It kind of seeps into your people. And I know you might be listening there just saying, just, just, it's just a real offhand thing. And I get it. It is. But when that becomes kind of the regular way of speaking, what happens? The, the decorum of the church breaks down. And it, it's not going to break down that day, but it is slowly eroding and i just it's almost shocking to me in god's house to say such a thing about the woman you're married to well i can't disagree with that uh he's gonna go into his opening illustration uh, i'll just tell you a story I, I never forget the the first time i bought my first brand new car and as you uh, as you know a new car it has this new car smell it's actually just this beautiful aroma it's actually chemicals that will kill you but it smells so good and i just remember my car being shiny and being beautiful and i, I i'd always had hand-me-down cars up until i bought my first new car and i was so excited about it and uh, i remember in the first week that i owned it I actually uh, backed out of my garage and smashed into this large uh, dumpster and just destroyed the back end of my brand new car. It was just completely unbelievable. I owned it three days and completely totaled my car. I remember my second new car in the first week I owned it, I got in an accident and it ripped the front end of my car off. It was a beautiful brand new car. I remember my third new car, and, and I pulled up to my friend's house, and there was a, a hot water heater in his yard. It was one of those friends, and uh, I, I just ripped the bumper off my car somehow. I don't know what happened. And, and you may at this point think, well, this dude is a pretty bad driver. Actually, I'm super obsessed with uh, keeping my car perfectly clean. You may know, know these people. Pastor Daryl is one of these people. You get in the car and everything is meticulous, like it looks like it's still from the dealership. I have these little fine-tooth combs that every stoplight, I brush the dust off of my... Anybody annoyed by the dust in the car? I have little kids. I don't let them ride in my car. Uh, I just get the Cheerios smashed down into the seat and into the crevices and the places. So kids, no kids in my car. My car is perfect. I get all the dust. Here, you got so much sand everywhere. There's just sand all over the cars. And I would clean my car obsessively. And so, it, it, listen, I'm obsessed with taking care of things. But on my fourth new car, it was a, a minivan 
Come on, minivan owners in the room, can I hear from you? Riding, you, you know this is the most practical vehicle in the world, but it's a minivan. And I remember getting that minivan, and the first day that I owned it, my wife smashed into a recycling bin and busted the tailgate. On my fifth new car, I was at a restaurant, and a dude backed into the side of my car and smashed both doors in. On my sixth new car, I had this brand new beautiful SUV and the first week I owned it, a large shell fell off a trailer in front of me in a storm and smashed the front end. And at some point in this story, you might be thinking, dude, you're pretty wealthy having all these new cars. Well, I actually was before I became a pastor, but listen, this is still, that's supposed to be funny. This is still frustrating. (laughs) Listen, I just wanted to have a new car. I wanted to be in perfect shape. I didn't want this thing I paid all this money for to to be damaged. I just wanted one year of that perfect new car smell. And my kids get in the car and it smells like Cheetos. I, I just wanted my car to be nice. Is that too much to ask for? See, on my seventh new car, I was backing out of the garage and I ripped the mirror off the, the side mirror as I began to back out. So finally, a few months ago, I bought my my dream car. I bought uh, this beautiful big truck, all black on black, black rims. It has backup cameras, sensors all around it. It's this beautiful, all leather sunroof. It's just that manly truck that you want to drive. And I finally got a truck, and I'm not going to haul anything in it or let people borrow it to move. It's my truck. It's made to look good. It's fully decked out. I mean, it it was so decked out, it it came with a drone that flies over it to keep me safe and, and away from harm. Uh, so I remember sitting at the dealership and I, I'm sitting there and I, I just, I have this conversation with myself and, and I just like, you have to take care of this car. You have to protect this investment. In the next few years, this car is going to look exactly how it looks right now. And so I, I remember just like it leaving the dealership and it was like, I was uh, taking driver's ed all over again. My hands are on 10 and two. I'm driving 10 miles under the speed limit. Yes, I am that guy. You need to go around me. I'm going to take care of this car. I remember checking all my blind spots as I drive home, checking my mirrors every three seconds. And and just so happened that that weekend, my sister-in-law came to town to visit us and I parked my brand new truck in my garage. It just barely fit. And she happened to park just a little off center behind me. And I needed to get up at 5 a.m. to go to church the next morning because I'm such a spiritual man of God. I wake up early and divine and have my conversations with the Lord, just like all your pastors do. And so I, w- I was dark outside and I, I-, I needed to back my car up out of the garage and I see her car is just off center. Well, I'm a very skilled driver, people. And I knew that I could get my car out of that garage without hitting her car. Anybody ever done this? You're like this far apart from another car. Be like, listen, I got this. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm making the cut. I'm getting out of the garage and uh, everything looks good. My mirrors are good. The backup camera's working and I'm paying attention to that backup camera as I begin to leave the garage. And all of a sudden I hear the loudest scratching metal sound. I've never heard anything like this. It sounded like a pterodactyl being eaten by a hippopotamus. It was just this horrible metal sound gash and, and, and the, this, this metal rail in my garage gashed the largest four foot gash all along the side of my brand new truck that I had bought the day before damaging all the doors and the side panels. And as you listen to this story, maybe... This is like, it just feels like this is a metaphor for your whole life. I want to ask you today, have you ever felt completely out of control? That punchline 
does not make sense with the story he just told. Why not? I mean, he's talking about, uh, uh, you know, having to clean his car all the time, which for some reason, you know, he gets into wrecks, I guess, because he's cleaning the car. He won't let his kids in the car. He just talked about his smoking hot wife and his lovely kids, but... Those little boogers, they can't get in my car. Yeah, that I mean, that's so interesting. And I know this is all supposed to be very charming. To me, it sounds very artificial. And I'll leave that to each year to determine. How many people have had eight new cars? That is shocking. And and the amount I've of, never had one. Me, me I'm neither. 50. Yeah, and I, I would fully expect to go through my entire life without sure. having a new car. Sure. Uh, so, very interesting. And you do see some of this kind of like, pulling glory onto yourself in that downplaying way like oh i used to be rich not anymore except as a pastor he, oh, just, bought, he just bought a brand new truck he'll he'll talk about it uh he'll talk about it later okay and so you know you're just like and you know what a, what a pious man of god he is because he gets up at five in the morning and goes to church and it's like or you could pray at home or whatever i mean you know it's just all of these little things but you i think you have to do that right you have to say I'm setting a spiritual example, especially when you're about to ask people to step up. You have to be like, I'm doing more than you. You're, I'm asking you to run a mile. I run I run 20. Mm. I'm not asking you to run 20 miles like I do because I'm really good. I'm only asking you to run one. And I feel like that's part of the subtle okay. thing he's setting up here. But I want to stress, like, especially since he spent so much time on this last truck, he was in control of that situation. He just did an awful job. It wasn't out of control. If, if it was story after story about how he would buy new cars and then things out of his control would happen to them, like a tree fell on it or something like that, great. It, it, at least that makes some sense. But here, it's like this was 100% your choosing, and you, and now you're just going to throw up your arms and say, who could have who controlled that situation? Well, you could have. You could have woken up your sister and said, I need you to move your car. Yeah, your sister-in-law, right? Uh, and say, I need you to move your car because I'm a man of God and I need to go to church to be God, a godly man, right? And I'm sure that she happily as a godly woman would have done so. But you know, this is why I love the Lutheran sermons in that we don't have the luxury, and, and maybe it's not a luxury, we, we don't have the time to, I mean, even if I were at your church, let's say something happened to you, God forbid, something happens to you and you need me to be at your church this coming Sunday, you call me and I go there. I don't have the luxury to stand up and say what a wonderful pastor that they have and let's have the, the entire congregation clap about how great they are and what an honor it is to be here today. And then to to start the, you know my sermon with you know some you know silly illustration about the eight cars that I've owned. We we don't have that. I mean we have to do so much in a little bit of time rather than try to fill a lot of time. We also, I think, properly understand the task we're about. And my task isn't to fluff you up with, with, with empty words. It isn't to point praise on other people. It is, we're literally gathered here today to bring glory to God. And so let's talk about God. And where's God been? In this entire thing so far, well, well, nowhere, not yet. And I would say, uh, keep let's keep that in mind as we go through this entire sermon. Yeah, where is God in any of it? But it is astounding to me how much this has to be kind of a sales pitch. 
we're good people doing good things and I'm making you feel good and you like me and I like you. And so that's why you're here. Well, no, uh, I don't, I don't want to be abrasive unnecessarily. So, but my job isn't to make you like me. My job is to proclaim God's word. And sometimes that word requires me to say things that you don't want to hear. Like you're a sinner and here's specific ways that you are sinning that, that the world tells you are fine, but God's word says no. And so in that way, I, I really, as a pastor, I see myself as like a police officer or like a surgeon, right? These are people that know the tasks they're about. And if they're doing their job well, they're not doing anything awful, but sometimes they have to do very hard things, right? Like say, you're in trouble. When I don't want my surgeon to come in and have a long conversation with me. I'm like, I, I, I want you to actually fix me. <laughs> sure, I don't want him to be crass or rude or, or you know, unlikable. But I also don't want him to like go out of his way to be my best bud because I'm like, you're here to do surgery on me. <laughs> and that's what I care about more than anything. As a pastor, I want people to care about the message I'm bringing. Uh, and it has to be about God's word, right? I mean, that's the prayer of the, uh, that's the sacristy prayer. Uh, that's the prayer uh, that I pray before every sermon, that, that my words would be blessed by the Holy Spirit to be true and, and according to his will. And here we're just getting... Nothing but this incomplete picture. And again, a misdirected one. You may feel out of control. And what I was thinking is, if I were going to do an example about this, it would be much shorter. He could have just condensed this down to the last car because that was the longest part of it anyway. He could have used that. It's, it still wouldn't have made sense. Is, it, is he afraid to talk about things like a loved one dying? That's out of control. That's when you're like, Lord, what, what, what is going on here? Right? Job didn't have his his wagon get scratched and say, Lord, my life is out of control. <laughs> his family died. He lost all his wealth. He was his 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 wife says to him, curse God and die. And that's where he's like, God, I've got some questions, <laughs> right? And and even God lets him question it until he actually questions him. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's and that's the point. To, to, to make it so shallow as a scratch on a vehicle, I, I, I have to be thinking that the people listening are like, how is this relatable to us at all? And I don't know, you, you came out of this, you, know, you, you said that you, know, you didn't go to the hospital a lot to visit people dying. You went to go see newborn babies and things. And when you kind of have this congregation, I'm, I'm imagining as often church plants, you have a bunch of younger people with right. young families. Right. They're kind of entering in the best years of their life. Right. Financially and physically. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's all you can think about. Whereas for me as a Lutheran pastor, I'm dealing with people who have been like going through cancer treatments for two sure, years. Sure. I've been, I'm dealing with people who's, you know, I'm dealing with widows and widowers. Sure. I'm dealing with, you know, people, people who've lost babies. Right. And, that's that's when life feels out of control. Mm-hmm. And those are the examples I would use. Yeah. Because they're real. Some of you are like that. The story of your cars is kind of like the story of my whole last year. Maybe you're here today. Maybe it's not a vehicle. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it just feels like life is out of control. Maybe it's situations with your family. Maybe it's your physical body. Maybe it's shame in your life that you haven't dealt with. Maybe it's, it's some issue that you feel up against. Maybe you lost your job. You feel uh, discouraged in this season of life, feeling like there's just no purpose for who I am. But I'm here to tell you today that God can reverse your fortunes just like this. We see in Psalms 
145.16, he, he opens up his hands and satisfies the desires of every living thing. Listen, church, it is nothing for God to show up and meet you. And you may ask the question, well, how? Church, listen, God is not looking for perfect. He is simply looking for promotable. Promotable? I don't know what that means. I Hopefully he, he, he plays it out, but... It sounds well, to me like he's saying there needs to be some potential in you that God sees, right. like, like a coach well, with a rough recruit. Well, you're already on the dream team. I mean, you're already doing these things. You're walking towards God. I mean, these are the promotable people, right? So he's, he's yeah. Cause, I mean, that's what he sees in Psalms. That is one of my pet peeves. Right. It's, when you, it is Psalm. Right. Whatever. When you refer to yeah. one Psalm, it's Psalm. It's not book. Psalms 139 or whatever it was. Yeah. It's hope, the book of Psalms. Hopefully he doesn't quote from Revelations. <laughs> That's another one. Yeah. And, and again, those are, those are little foibles. I'm sure I've slipped on this too. Sure, sure, sure. But the deeper problem here is how does God open his hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing? And he's, he's turning it into this grandiose thing. And what I love is that we say this psalm. Luther puts this psalm before us to pray, and he tells us to pray it before we, we eat. How does God provide? Through daily bread. And so really what, we're, what this psalm is reflecting upon is daily bread. And see, we always have to turn God's blessings into extraordinary things, but it's not. It is his daily provision. You have a house. You have a family. You have food on the table. Right? And yes, maybe part of those pieces are lacking, but God is telling you, look at what you have and recognize how I'm blessing you in those things. And yes, please do ask me for the things that, that you find are lacking too. But understand, sometimes you go through a season of lack so that your faith can grow. Right? Or, or I, I make you go through a season of lack to spare you from a greater loss. Right? God's always doing stuff and we don't fully understand why. And what we're dealing with is God is going to give you what the world says is best. That's the picture that I'm getting so far, right? Your, your reputation is in tatters. Well, every, every person wants a good reputation. You're dealing with uh, shame. You're dealing with shame. You're unemployed. And, and, of course, the wonderful subtext of all of this is clearly those aren't the things I'm dealing with. The worst thing that's happening to me right now is I scrape my car because I'm a, I'm a man of God. And I couldn't say to you. That I deal with my own shame. And well, he's going to get to shame. that. Okay, well, good. Okay, good. But, At least in his mind. But it is so superficial what he's doing. And then he and then he says to them, hey, this thing that's happening in my life that's deeply superficial, let's talk about the real meaningful things in your life. And I just kind of, I'm, I'm mildly disgusted right now. Good. And I promise he's not looking for striving. He's simply looking for an act of surrender. And listen... If we could just rid ourselves today, and I'm gonna invite you into this, to rid ourselves of the need to control everything all the time, I actually believe that God is gonna take you on a ride that you will never forget, amen? Amen, and here's what I believe about right now. I believe that in this room, online, whatever campus you're at, that God is actually setting up a miracle story for your life. You may think that this year has just been a waste. The last two years have been so discouraging. And I actually believe today that God is bringing a miracle to you. 
I actually believe today that this may be your best year ever. Many people aren't saying that right now with all the discouragement, all the the things that are happening in our world. How could this be our best year? I actually believe that this could be your best year if it's your best year spiritually. Amen? Would you pray with me? Pastor Oakry, you you look to be in so much pain. Pain. I mean, I didn't invite you here to the Pluck Chicken Studios to uh, to hurt you. I feel this way at the beginning of some movies when you're literally 20 minutes into it, and then all of a sudden the title screen comes on, and you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> "Oh, so wait, that was just the preamble, right? That was just the right. introduction, right?" Because I think he's gonna. I think he's going to like uh, ask everybody to pray with him here af- afterwards. Like this, this really is just. I mean, it's no different from you saying, "Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Amen. I mean, that's your preamble. Yeah, this is just a, this is a whole lot of preamble to get to the theme. Now, my theme does come a little bit later, but it's usually like. I'm there within two or three paragraphs, sure, right? It's sure. Maybe a brief introduction, a couple of challenges. Well, here's how we're going to address you it. You don't talk about your eight new cars that you've I, bought and wrecked. Right. Well, because I don't like the lie. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying he's like, I don't have eight new cars. But we, we have received his theme, right? Which is this. This w- is the year. This is the year God is going to perform a miracle in mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a miracle of providing. Mm-hmm. But also, what is God looking for? He's looking for some kind of service. Right. So it, it's a muddled message, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, okay, so this is going to be the year of your miracle, provided you are promotable and surrender to God. Okay, I can't wait for, I mean, I'd love to have a year like that. Amen. So uh, let's see what we got to do in order to uh, see the Lord do this in our lives. Lord, we thank you that we can get into your word, that we can gather together in these moments, however we're getting here. And we come before you, Lord, and I I just pray this, that you would just give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to receive your word today. Because you have a word that is in season for our lives to impart life, hope, freedom, and purpose. I believe that, Holy Spirit, you are going to release peace and joy in this room that no circumstance in this world can bring, that only you can bring. And so we receive that right now, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen? Amen, hey, listen, I actually, I grew up a pastor's kid. Any PKs in the house? I grew up a pastor's kid, and so there were seven of us. I, I, as from six weeks old on, I was at church three times a week. We had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Anybody with me? I was at church all the time. In fact, I was kind of a church rap. I had heard all the sermons you could ever hear. In fact, I used to take a table knife from the church kitchen. I'd break into the Sunday school rooms and steal all the candy on Saturday night. And uh, I'm a horrible person. I'm just confessing that to you, God, right now. I would steal food from the, the food pantry. It just sounds horrible. I remember crawling under the pews in church. My dad called me out, and we were going to get in trouble after service. And just... Uh, you know, I grew up in church culture. I grew up around church people, and I'd been in endless worship environments. I did all the missions trips, the camps, and the conventions. In fact, every Sunday when I was, uh, I would show up as a teenager because I was so spiritual. I would put my Bible right next to me so no girl could get between me and Jesus. That's that's kind of how I I interacted with church. 
I remember getting into, uh, I was 18 years old and, and some things happened in church and some horrible things were done to my parents by people in the church. And, uh, and who knows that church people can hurt people and, I, I just, and hurting people hurt people. And I, I just remember them doing some things that were just so hurtful and they just, they marked my life and they, they created some fear in my life and some bitterness in my life because people are people and, and just these things happened in my life that were just so hurtful and harmful by the church. And I, I remember uh, kind of moving on into my career and, and just so happened at a very young age, I, I was very successful in, in my career. I went into business uh, and, and actually by age 25, I actually became ex extremely successful and I began to move up the corporate ladder. I was overseeing a five state region for a fast growing company. By age 26, I made my first million dollars it's a lot of money, right? Made my first million dollars, a lot of money for a 26-year-old, and began to uh, take that money, save it, and I launched my own business. Uh, soon I owned uh, 17 stores over a whole entire state, retail locations. We were doing about 17 to $20 million a year in revenue, and uh, I became very successful in myself, and I had turned away from the church. The church had hurt me. The church was not for me anymore. I was just became kind of this, this bitter person. And, and listen, on paper, I was successful. On paper, I, I was recognized and promoted. I'd be in the newspaper. I was a top-selling company in the whole entire Midwest for the company that, that I sponsored. And, I, and, the, and I, I was a big deal, by the way. I was pretty much a big deal. My family in ministry, they, they were all pastors at this time. And they would look at me and be like, man, we're in ministry. And it's just so hard to be in ministry. But Nate, he's successful. He's got all these stores. He's made it in life. The dark truth in my story was I was actually suffering from a 10-year eating disorder. I had secret shame struggles in my life, secret sins that I had buried deep that no one knew about, things that I just hid from. I, I, the shame was this, this, this monster that just polluted my mind, and I, I just never dealt with it, and I never confessed it to anyone. I just hid it, and it just kept reinforcing itself, and the shame would reinforce itself, and the shame would reinforce itself, and I lived in this guilt cycle. My marriage, it was, it was barely in maintenance mode. I, I, I didn't care if I lost my marriage or not. I was a workaholic. I'd work 14, 15 hours a day, seven days a week, and I, I just literally couldn't get enough of it. It was a, an obsession of me. I was obsessed with the next opportunity. And honestly, I had no accountability in my life. I was so, I just remember that moment so vivid right now. It was, I was so lonely. You know, I know that we're not supposed to critique this but my goodness I feel like I am on an episode of Dr. Phil well this is testimonial right and you feel the transition coming I mean the one thing I've been hearing very distinctively is past tense mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. I had mm -hmm. I think you can acknowledge these things and not probably not as graphically Right, but you, you're you've got to fill time. Okay, what I'm expecting to have happen here is, you know, but now all of that stuff is behind me. Mm -hmm. I, it is much more powerful because it's it's still true. I have shame, I have guilt, I have problems because you're I'm broken, right? And and you don't need to go into the the awful nitty gritty specifics of it, but you can leave this space when you're dealing with people in this congregation who are living broken lives today and struggles today 
and you say, yeah, I can relate to you, brother or sister, because I had those. And it's just like, okay, great. And you got right with God, and now they're fixed. So mine aren't fixed. Am I not right with God? This is the poison pill. If you, if you say, once you become a believer, all of the bad stuff has to, has to get gone, because Jesus wouldn't allow bad stuff to happen in your life. Jesus' own life is proof against that. He was always faithful to the Father. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read the Bible yet. Some bad stuff happens to Jesus. And so God lets bad stuff happen to us. And, and we're still victims of our own sin. And again, this is one of those delightful tensions that don't feel delightful, but are, uh, that God is constantly putting us into, which is that, yes, you are forgiven. And that's what makes you perfect and whole. You don't make yourself perfect and whole. But you're also a sinner, right? We have that language of, at the same time, sinner and saint. Simulus de set peccata, right? That's the language we use. And and it it upsets evangelicals. It, accepts, it, it upsets Catholics. It upsets really everybody else but Lutherans when we say that. Because they're like, no, you have to be one or the other. And I say, no, I don't. Because scripture says I'm both. Wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Paul says that in the present tense. If Paul can say that about himself in the present tense, let's speak about our sin in the present tense. Don't if you put it all in the past, I think you're you're leaving your people utterly lost. Okay. You have just brought up something. Uh we're going to take a break from the guy that we're listening to now, and I want you to hear something that another pastor said regarding exactly what you just said, Pastor Oak. Let me put this statement on the screen. I want you to answer it, true or false. And it's a little bit of a trick question, but answer this with me, true or false. I am a sinner saved by grace. Would you say true or false? Like there's like four of us in my room right now. So y'all are going to have to be my audience. Would you say true or false? Everybody that thinks that's true, say I am a sinner saved by grace. All right, well, there's a couple hands and I tricked you. Hey, most people get this wrong. Um, this is false. I want to tell you why. You used to be a sinner saved by grace. You used to be. That was your old nature. I've heard people say, well, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, listen, that sounds all religious and all, but you're just flat wrong about that. If you belong to Christ, your old nature has been buried and put to death. You are a brand new person. Listen, I am not a sinner and you're not a sinner. Sure, I sin, but that's not who I am. I'm a new person saved by grace. My old life is gone. I have to stop identifying to my past. I have to stop identifying to those old labors, lab, labels that are on us. Don't let your past mistakes and your past labels become tattoos on your body that are irreversible. Listen, the labels are just sticky notes and they can be removed when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, he just flat out said it, right? I mean, that's a staple of the Reformation, right? Uh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm assuming that there can be no confession and absolution in that context. I mean, this is the shame of it, is we are afflicted by sin. But for the pastor to stand up and say that I'm not a sinner, but I sin, 
that's ridiculous. I mean, how many lies do you have to tell before you are yeah. a liar? Right. How many I, how many how many how many people do you have to kill before you are a murderer? Right. Well, and this is partially what happens, and I'm not saying this is this guy's error, but I I would imagine it's at least part of it, is if you lose uh, original sin and you lose corruption internally, right? Which is exactly what Jesus says. He says, where does bad stuff come from? Does it come from outside into us? No, it comes from out of our heart and is then displayed out of us, right? So it's inside out. The sins I commit don't make me a sinner. I commit sins because I am a sinner. Right. And so what he's saying is the exact opposite. And he's implying, well, I can do, I can mess up a few times, but that doesn't define me because those messes up are externals, right? They're just little little flaws in the program, as it might be. And that's a very worldly way of viewing these things, right. a very worldly way. Instead, we come in humility and repentance to the Lord and say, I am a sinner and I still need your grace. And so what they're doing is this classic thing, right? You need Jesus to become saved. But after that, the mess ups you have are more or less on you. And, and guess who guess who was the first church to teach that? Which is going to utterly shock these people because they probably think they're not even Christian. It's the Catholic Church. In baptism, your corrupted nature is corrected, but all the sin you fi- commit after, what has to happen? You have to make satisfaction for it because that's not who you are, right? So it has to be purged out of you. And it's either going to be purged out of you here or it's going to be purged out of you later, right? In this place that they call purgatory. Which you can hear the word purge in the word exactly. purgatory. Yeah, we, we sometimes think, well, if hell's bad and heaven's good, then purgatory must just be kind of gray and boring. It's like, no, it's fire. It's just that cleansing fire uh, that gets you through. And don't worry, you'll only spend a few million year, years there if you're the average person. I, think. I mean, they have things that will take millions of years off of purgatory. So I don't know how long you're spending in there, but it's a long time. If you follow the Pope on Twitter, you actually get some time off in purgatory. I'm sure. I mean, they still do have indulgences like that. But in rejecting kind of that Catholic works righteousness, they've just come to another place of works righteousness. Because what are they going to do then? When a person, when a, when a member of this guy's congregation comes in and says, I'm, I'm struggling with sin, what, what can you say? Uh, that's, that's just, you got to stop doing that because that's not who you are. How much better is it to point at Jesus and say, and he forgives that too? I wish that when I became a Christian, all my problems just disappeared. Instead, what God has done for me in this sin-filled life, right? It's not just my sin. I live in a sinful world too, and sin afflicts me, is he's given me a place to go with my guilt, with my shame, with the afflictions, and it's always the cross. And, and it's outside of me, which makes it so much better. And where's this guy pointing you? Inside inside right and i and i love he said right the these are not tattoos permanent they're sticky notes that that can be taken off when when jesus comes and and he doesn't even have the guts to say jesus is the one who takes them off right jesus comes and he says you can take that off now right it's up to me to remove the labels no what jesus does is he says yeah is am i is is my old man buried with christ yes is he drowned in the waters of baptism? Yes. But we have that old pithy line, right? But that sucker can swim. Mm-hmm. And what we're dealing with is a, is a present reality that I am still experiencing the drowning of the old man in my baptism. Daily. Un- daily until the day I die. You see, we want to we make it all just this one little point 
in time. But really, it's my entire life lived. Now, compared to eternity, it's next to nothing, right? In fact, it's, it's almost nothing, right? I mean, what is it compared to eternity? It seems long to me because I'm experiencing it. But I experience it by coming to Christ continually because that's what my baptism does. It just brings me to Jesus time and time again. And, and again, this is such an important point. I'm not receiving new forgiveness when I come to Jesus. I'm, re- I'm, I'm being reaffirmed and strengthened in the same forgiveness I've always had. It's, it's not the forgiveness that's failed me. It's, it's myself, right? I've forgotten. I've lost sight of it. And so what this person says is damnably wrong. Damnably wrong. And, and I don't use that word lightly, but he is pointing people away from Christ. That's damnable. And there will be an accounting. The people who teach falsely, there's accounting for that. And to say it, I can, I can make excuses for people who say things poorly, but when he says it so pointedly and so awfully, he is leading people to hell with that, that, that kind of teaching. Wow. And may it not be, may wow. it not be. Well, let's get back to our original guy. And to be really honest, I just lacked anything in my life and I, that, that would actually help me overcome this. And I was so miserable. The isolation would torment me. I remember just laying at night and just like, I just wish someone would see me. I wish someone would notice me. I wish someone would acknowledge me. I wish someone would reach out to me. And no one ever did. No text, no phone call. Unless they wanted a free, free, you know, free item from my store or something from me. Everything felt transactional. People just wanted things from me. No one reached out to say, how are you really doing? I actually became really bitter at God. I became very angry at the church. And I even questioned if God was real or not. And, and if he was real, was it even important to my life? Man, I was a mess. It was hard because uh, my Christian family, they just looked at me and they promoted the success in my life. They bragged about how successful I was. And I was just sitting there and I just, I just wish someone would reach out and say, listen, you're loved and you're cared for and there's a plan for your life and there's purpose for you. But no one ever did. Not to be overly critical here, but this reminds me of creating a story, creating a narrative running with a theme that takes place after it's already happened and then blaming other people because they didn't reach out to me or or what have you. Yeah, I think he's saying some very interesting things, but you can clearly tell that he's protecting the core hurt here. One, he's being very vague about the suffering he was going through. Two, he's putting it all in the past, right? Like, like... That pain's behind me now. And and three, he is casting it, right? Whatever pain I was feeling, the real problem was the people that weren't reaching out to me. Well, and, didn't he mention something about the church hurt him too? Right. Or We least, know nothing about that or how that came about. Or all of a sudden he just becomes angry at God and disillusioned with the church. My family was just focusing on how successful I was. Well, friend, you were focusing on how successful you were too. It's perfectly normal. Is there a danger in all of this? Yes. We do get caught up in human ideas of glory and accomplishment. And scripturally, we're constantly warned against that. The Bible is full of people that are pursuing the vain pursuits of the world versus the noble pursuits that God gives us. And those noble pursuits, you're not going to get the accolades. You're not going to have the money in the bank for that. But there is something deeply wrong with casting this as, why couldn't people see my pain? 
Well, because you were hiding it, because you were ashamed of it, and you kept it very deep. It is good to be paying attention, but when you, when people are talking to you and you say, how are you doing? And you say, everything's fine. In fact, it's great. How would you expect them to read your mind and see that? And and didn't you see that I, I wasn't sincere when I said that? And I was like, well, no, <laughs> you, I, I took you at your word and, and you said it convincingly. There is a, a point, right, where when you have the suicide hotline, you don't expect the suicide hotline to call you. You need to call the suicide hotline. You need to say to other people, I am hurting. You need to cry out to God, I am hurting. But he had a, a problem with God, did he not? <laughs> well, like said. I, whatever that means. And so maybe you're not going to call out to God, but you need to say to somebody, say to your family, say to your mom, say to your dad. I mean, that's what they're there for. Say, things aren't as rosy as I, I'm making them appear. And if then they just ignore that, okay. But again, I want to be careful here. He's casting things very vaguely, and he, and he, and, but he is creating a narrative, and we have to be careful about that because we all do this. I make narratives to make my life seem better than it actually is. And to make us look better than somebody else. Exactly so. It is a great warning, and for the listeners especially, as you hear this guy talk, and you can kind of like piece it out, right? And, and this just does sound like something you would hear kind of on Oprah or something. Well, if it sounds like something you'd hear on Oprah, it's probably not as genuine as you would actually want it to be uh, because it is staying nice and vague and, and you get a sense of it, but take the time to reflect back on yourself, not just be tough on this guy. Say to yourself, I do, I do that same garbagey kind of recasting thing too. And really what I need to do is be a repentant sinner in truth and just come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, you know all the things I've done and pretended at, the, the hurt I have and the way I've tried to cover it up and how I put my expectations on other people when I'm afraid to deal with them myself. We all have that. And this is the beauty of the church. And, and this is what I wish he could do is say, we have an opportunity to be incredibly honest with the Lord. Even when we can't be honest with ourselves, we can be incredibly honest with the Lord and unpack this picture. And you can hear it coming. I think you've actually mentioned this already. You can hear it coming that there's going to be a turn. That thing. I mean, he wouldn't be up on the stage, right. as they call it. Here was my life. I want to say before Christ, but he's, yeah. he's really always had Christ. Well, but it is. I mean, but it is cast before Christ, right? He, he, I'm sure he's going to tell you that whatever I had with Jesus during this time wasn't genuine. And I think then it's going to be cast as, okay, now I have the real deal. I, I think you're right. But, okay, this brings up another issue. And this might be boring to most of our listeners, but it was phenomenal to me when I learned about it. It is this whole truth that God uses suffering on purpose. I mean, he doesn't call us to a suffering-free life, actually, he inflicts suffering on us. Yeah. I'm thinking of unfectum. Yeah. You know, I categorize suffering in different ways because we, we do experience it in different ways. Some things are just the suffering of life, right? Uh, you know, you get older and you get the aches and pains of life. And, and limitations. Yeah. And, and that's suffering everyone encounters. Um, sometimes there's that specific suffering for your faith. Uh, and, and that's the kind of stuff that Christians are like, I, I wouldn't mind that. But then there is this this third category, which is suffering, sharp, painful suffering uh, that 
specifically comes, it can come into a non-Christian's life to bring them to Jesus too, but it comes to make you aware that this world is not good enough and the good things of this world do not endure. And God snatches away something precious and wonderful of this life, which was going to be taken away anyway, so that you can repent because you're going down a path. You can repent and say, oh man, I, what I thought was the most important thing in the world isn't the most important thing in the world. God is actually the most important thing in the world. And if I don't put my hope in him, all this stuff that's being snatched away from me is just going to be gone. And then we have this promise of Jesus, right? When we come to him, when we give up fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and all the good things of this world for his sake, what does he do? He doesn't keep them away. He adds them back to it. He multiplies them back to us. And that's the truth. And that's why... The suffering of this world, and, and we see loss differently as Christians now. We say, yeah, I, lo- I lost. And, and that, sometimes that loss is profound. We're not just talking about money or, or anything like that. Luther, in his prayer about the pandemic. Uh, Which he lost his daughter. He from. lost his daughter. In. And, you know, you might reflect, would he be able to pray as boldly knowing that his daughter would die? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, he would. Because he understood that his daughter in this life, she was going to be taken away from him at some point. But because of Christ, his daughter waits for him, and now he's with her. Mm. And he's with her for eternity. Right. And when you cast suffering into this light, you can say, oh, right, th- this is literally the stuff we do all the time when we can see the value of it. Right. We sacrifice things all the time. We give up things all the time. We, we deny ourselves things all the time if we can see the value of it. I don't buy the thing today so I can buy the better thing two months from now. Mm-hmm. Right. I go to the gym, and I experience the pain so that I can have the gain. Did the gain come right away? No, of course not. And yet somehow when it comes to spiritual things and we experience pain, we're like, this is unimaginable. Well, that's because we can't imagine that God has actually done what he's promised that he'll do, which is give us something better than this world. We must leave this world and go to a new heavens and a new earth. That's our final destination. Amen. And what a promise that is. And what we're casting this then is like he's crying out and frankly whining a little bit about the fact that people couldn't recognize him in the suffering. And what we can rejoice in is that wherever he's at, there was a place where he was in repentance called back. I don't know if he's, he cast it in that kind of language. He should, because that's biblical language. But he, could, he, he finally was able to recognize the, the things that, that I was valuing in life and the way I was living my life was ineffective. And as tacky as it is to blame other people for it, at least finally he was able to kind of own it and say, nope, this isn't working, and come back to the Lord in the position he's in. We can always wonder how far along he's come, you know. Did he take all his money like uh, Zacchaeus and give it back to the poor and all of that? Well, he did just buy a new pickup truck, so he's probably kept a little bit in the bank. He is certainly a different man than he's than the man he was talking about. Sure. And that's a God-blessed thing. So what does Luther say makes a theologian? Well, I know suffering is uh, the key one. Well, right. That's where I was going, right? I mean, there's um, uh, Oratio, no. Mentatio. And tentatio. Tentatio. So this whole truth of suffering. So the guy who's quote-unquote preaching this quote-unquote sermon, he is experiencing suffering. Yeah. And it's as if it's not supposed to be there. It is supposed to be there. Yeah. Certainly he's acting like it's an evil that God has to snatch away instead of an evil that God has allowed to seep into his life to create a better good. But isn't it interesting how when God does that, 
God allows this evil to seep into your life to bring about a better good, as you say. What is what does our old sinful Adam do? It's it says, "Why God?" Right. It hates yeah. God. Yeah, and it points the finger at him. <laughs> well, and this is very interesting. Um, there's a. I don't old, laugh. I mean, this is sin, by the way. Well, it oh, is. I do want to. I do want to point out. Yeah. it's grave sin for doing that. And I've been there, but it wasn't like, "Well, Lord, you understood what I was going through." Blah blah blah. It was. I repent. What a poor, miserable sinner. To, on the backside of it, you realize. God is the one who did this, and it wasn't out of spite or hate. It was all out of love. Yeah. And it is my fault for hating him. And I would say this. I'm reading Luther, and I realize what? He hated God, too. Yeah. It's like, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe this. Could you imagine if he hadn't been honest about that? (laughs) Right, right, right. right. There's something, I think this is part of the reason why we're drawn to Luther's writings, is he is so deeply honest about his struggles and his battles with uh, his own uh, foolishness. And, uh, you know, you you almost get this, you you get a sense of a very tortured man, Mm. especially the younger Luther. But you're absolutely right. We, the sinful flesh hates suffering. And our culture has really been overtaken by this because I think the luxuries of life have convinced us somehow, some way, we can just avoid suffering. And you cannot. Suffering will come. And sometimes in shocking ways. I I will admit, I, I get lulled into a sense of security about this. When I go to the hospital, I hear somebody's hurting. I expect to come in and find them either knocked out or just kind of relaxing there. Why? Because we have morphine to see their pain alleviated. But I have gone into scenes in the in the hospital where a person is writhing in agony and the things that we think should be able to fix it are unable to touch it. And you know, it makes me think about the people that, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, like this was just normal to them. They saw suffering everywhere. Right. And to come to them and say, uh, the best thing we can do is avoid suffering I think you would have just been laughed out of the room. You're like, how? <laughs> Suffering is an is the truth of the world. And and but here's the thing, even though we have all these luxuries, even though we have all these things that make our lives vastly easier, and I do avoid suffering most days generally, suffering comes. A suffering free life doesn't make you necessarily a better person, a more virtuous person, a more godly person. Every single success story that we follow up on, they say I had to fail a hundred times to succeed once. And we say, yeah, about that. <laughs> I I want to I want to just succeed once. <laughs> and I like everything you said, but I'm just going to ignore the suffering right, part. And if right. I do have to suffer, I'm going to give up. Right, right, right. Like suffering create what the Bible says, right? We we suffer that creates perseverance and and hope and faith, and it all builds, right? It's it's almost like you build into it. There's a reason why I think you can make decent analogies between building our faith through oratio, uh, meditatio, and tentatio, right? Uh, uh, preaching, prayer, and suffering. Uh, you can relate that to the gym. It's like you, the first time you go to the gym, right? You feel stupid. You don't know where anything is. You, you get on the machine. You don't know how to turn the knobs and get it correct. And you feel, and, and then you do it, and, you, and you're not different, right? You're still the same, you know, flabby-armed, fat person that you were when you went there. I'm talking about myself, right? And 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 then, but you keep going and you keep muscling through, so to speak. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, there are results. But it takes time and it takes discipline. That's what the Bible is constantly teaching us, patience and discipline. 
and and then take up the things that God has laid very easily in front of us to take up to do. And instead, what we do is, how about I don't do that and I just kind of play it, play it my faith. Well, let's not play it our faith. Let's take it very seriously because the promises that are laid on us in our faith are bigger than the promises that we get anywhere else. And let's be serious about that. So this is a little bit of an aside, but we really are trying to confront this idea that everything has failed him because he suffered. And it will be interesting if he acted like, if he, if he says that God took all that suffering away, it's like, well, that's not exactly how it works. What God does is he he recasts suffering into a new light so that we can see beyond it. Well, sure. Let's dive a little deeper. At this church, and there are plenty of other churches just like it, okay? So we're really not singling out this church. This really is a mindset. This church is called Life Point Now. So right now, Life Point Now. And their theme verse for their entire church is John 10.10. 10. And it's actually the second half of the verse. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yeah. Now, you and I both know that when Jesus is talking there, when he says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly, he's talking about eternal life. He's not talking about life in this world and the abundance of things in the here and the now, but they take it to mean life abundantly here. Hmm. So when you add suffering into this mix of trying to have your Joel Osteen best life now, you might as well be pouring gasoline into the cake batter. I agree with you that in the, the fullest picture of the abundant life is eternal life. But I think there is a, a place in a way where you can say it without falling into Joel Osteen territory of saying, my Christian faith and that perspective it gives me, my life is richer and more abundant because okay, of Christ. Okay, fair. But, and that's important because I, I do want people to recognize that the Christian faith has benefits in this life too. But those benefits only exist because I'm not putting all my chips in on this life. That's the Joel Osteen problem. He says, you got to put in all your chips on this life and pray God magnifies it because that's what you're going to get. Well, okay. God, and Jesus himself says, that's one way to live your life and you'll get your reward. This life will be rewarding to you if that's where you put all your chips. But the reward is a meager one. You may think it looks big, but it's real small. And the grave is the proof of that, right? We say you can't take it with you, but we keep living our lives as if somehow, some way, that's actually a lie, even though we know it's true. I mean, it, this is how this is how disconnected from reality sin can make us. We live our lives acting like the things that we actually fully functionally know are true. I cannot take it with me, but I'm going to keep living my life thinking I can. Uh, you could die tomorrow. That's a biblical way to be called to, to live your life, right? You could die tomorrow. You fool. Your soul is required of you tonight. Um, and yet we just keep living our lives as if we're just going to live forever. And this is the foolishness that sin projects into us. It makes us believe things that we objectively know are not true. (laughs) And it is so strange. But when you have that perspective, even when suffering comes into your life, see, the abundant life, God didn't, when Jesus said that, he wasn't like, abundant means only the good stuff that you want. (laughs) Abundant means the good things I have in store for you. And sometimes the good things that I have in store for you are suffering, oh. which brings you to faith. No, I know we don't like it, but it's so true. And as a Christian, when I have suffered, I have been able with that perspective, not perfectly because I'm a sinner, but I've been able to say, 
okay, I can see what God is doing. And Or maybe you can't see what God is doing, but you can trust that yes. God is up to something good. That's that's very well said, and I appreciate that, yeah. I trust that whatever God is doing, he's going to keep his promises to me. And there are some devastating things. And I know people that are dealing with hardships that make the hardships I have experienced in life pale in comparison. I, I know all of this. Yeah. But the hardships I have experienced are still very real, and God is still working in them and through them to draw me closer to him, and my life is better because of it. And it isn't because I have more. It's because what I have is magnified in the Lord. All right, we've done enough bloviating on this, but I think it's an important point when we talk about really the need for suffering in the Christian's life. I think part of the reason why we struggle with suffering is because it is not natural to us. We weren't designed to suffer, right? That in The picture in the garden, it's the same reason that death offends us. is because we weren't made to die either. But let's look at it this way. Just like Christ took death and hollowed it out and filled it with life, God takes suffering and hollows it out and fills it with promise. And if we can see it that way, I think then when suffering comes, I don't expect you to have a cheerful smile on your face any more than I expect you to be laughing at a funeral. It's, it still hurts. But that is one of the beautiful things. I, I say this about funerals all the time. The word bittersweet was designed for Christian funerals. It is bitter and sweet at the exact same moment. And we live in that tension that I can both be the most miserable I've ever been and joyfully crying out to the Lord saying, thank you for what you have done for this person I loved. And thank you that I have a promise to hold on to that's bigger than the, the, the body I see in front of me. And can we bring that same attitude to our suffering? Well, I pray we can, and certainly we should. And so this guy, Chad, Chad saw me, and I remember a day with Chad, and I just told him my pain, and, 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 and Chad said, man, dude, I, I see that you're hurting, and I just, would you go to church with me? I, I don't know necessarily the answers to everything you're going through, or even what to say to you, but I go to this church, would you go to church, and I'll take you to lunch? And it met in this high school, and it was like crazy, it was like dark auditorium, and there was a DJ on stage, and there was a guy rapping, and I'm like, where am I at? Is this a nightclub? But it was 9 a.m. on Sunday, and I'm like, all these people are happy, and I came in the parking lot, and people are waving flags in my face, and people were really nice when I walked in, and I'm like, where, are they on drugs? Where did they get all this caffeine? This is crazy, you know, caffeine, the Christian drug of choice. And so I, I, I came into the church and everyone was friendly to me and they just, they just saw me. And, I, he, and this guy, Chad, kept inviting me back to this church called Substance. He'd show up, he'd meet me every Sunday in the lobby. He'd sit with me and then he'd take me to lunch afterwards. And I was that guy sitting eight rows back in this side of the auditorium with my arms crossed, just staring down the pastor, criticizing everything they did at the church. But over time of showing up, I began to soften and, and become more open to what I was hearing in that, ser- that service. And soon after in that, that process, there was this 21-year-old intern in the church. Her name was Grace. Grace always remembered my name. She never forgot my name. And, and I, I was checking my kids into kids' ministry, and I checked them in, and, and she just said, Hey, Puccinis, I'm so excited you're here. And Grace invited my, fam- my wife and I to come serve in kids' ministry. And it was the first person to make an invitation at church for me to serve with them. And that invitation began to lead to a deeper transformation in my life. There was this guy named Daniel. He'd hang out in the lobby, and 
he, he asked me to come attend his small group with me, and he's, I'm still friends with him today, and began to get accountability in my life. And at that group, that small group, I met a guy named Bill, and he, he said, you want to meet on Monday and get tacos together and just pray together, because you know all great things happen over tacos, amen? And we began to, to meet together, and, and then this other guy said, hey, let's get together on Thursday nights and just have accountability together and just deal with stuff in our life as men together. Soon after, this guy named Pastor Peter Haas, who is the lead pastor of our church, he saw me and he began to mentor me and pour into my life. And over time, he invited me to serve on his church board and use my experience in business to help the church. And during that time, there was a guy named Jeff who saw leadership in me and he called me out to be a leader in a small group. After that, there was a guy named Jordan and he called me out to come together with other pastors and grow in my leadership. And soon after that, there was a guy named Bart. Bart was physically in shape and healthy, and he said, hey, man, I do these triathlons. You want to do triathlons with me and get physically in shape? Because he, you can't be spiritually healthy and not be physically healthy. And so would you do those things with me? Began to do triathlons together, and we did five triathlons and began to get mentorship in my life, people speaking into my life. And after that, a guy named Peter, the pastor, came back to me and says, I, I know there's a deeper calling on your life for ministry. I want to call it out and see you come to the place that God has for you. And get this, after years of building connectivity and accountability, relationships and spiritual growth, I, I, I burned my plow, I sold my business, I went all into the ministry and went all after Jesus. That punchline is incredibly awful. Because again, it makes it sound like it's not real until you pursue Jesus. Jesus has been grabbing this guy by the neck or however long this has taken, through, what did we count out, 10, 11, 12 people? You have missed it all together. Okay. We have eight cars in the beginning, yeah. eight brand new cars that have been ruined. And now we have 10 individuals who have built in to this guy's life to call him from a wrecked is that, is that the metaphor we're building to? Yeah. Oh, man. Eight That's... to ten. Okay. Think about what one of them said. You can't be spiritually healthy unless you're physically healthy. What a bizarre thing to say. Why? Because there are people who like are missing limbs. It's not necessarily physically unhealthy, but it's certainly physically lacking. And to say to them, well, you're never... You... God love you, brother, sister. <laughs> But you're never going to be quite as good as a, as a, as a full-bodied person right. you know, or something like or that. Or as a, a triathlete. Yeah. It, that's, a, that's a very American evangelical attitude towards it. This is not to say that we shouldn't take care of our bodies. Of course. Of course. Of course. But to connect. This is what we do. We connect our spirituality to our politics. We connect our spirituality to our health. We connect our spirituality to the things the world says are important. And then we, we just kind of use our spirituality as a lens to uh, bless it. And we say, well, I'm not like the world. Uh, I'm healthy for Jesus. I'm, I'm not like the world obsessed with politics. I'm, I'm obsessed with the politics of Jesus. However, we cast that, right? Which usually tends to be what we prefer. not Jesus like, in American flag draped around him. Yeah, or, or Jesus hugging, you know, some poor immigrant, you know, crossing the border illegally. We, we, it gets cast either way. And we use that manipulatively. I, I do want to say wh what we are seeing. So taking, his, taking what he's saying about his life at face value, 
is one for this journey to start it was very interesting he had to make a confession to someone he made a confession to chad chad is the guy that reached out to him and said hey listen i don't have all the answers but you know would you come to church with me yeah and after finding out his pain it's like knowing your pain and finding out that your life isn't everything that you have presented it to be i think jesus is an answer so God love Chad. Amen. For for bringing him to church, even if it is a, look, God works through weird churches with DJs and and all of that too. I mean, I, but Chad I, takes him to lunch. He meets him there. I mean, and he, yeah, he sticks to him, mm-hmm. and that's and that's very good. There's there's some the people he's pointing to who have had an influence in his life mostly are good pictures. I actually think one of the very interesting things was this invitation to participate in youth ministry because I, children's or children's ministry. Grace is the one who invited yeah, him to. But I, I do find that interesting because I think sometimes as a pastor, I'm very reluctant to let someone get involved in the work of the church who hasn't come of come a certain way, right? We have to be. Well, to an ex- I mean, it de- I think it depends on the work, right? Uh, but you're right. I mean, we we have we have doctoral protectors on that a church like this would not have at all they're like do you love jesus whatever warm that means. body yeah, warm body yeah but there are people whose faith is engaged by rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty sure. too and i i think that there is a place like just to think creatively as you know pastor like are there places where people aren't going to be teaching where i don't know what they would teach right you're like hey pastor i found this thing on on the website you know if you like you just type stuff into google some of the first things that come up are like Church of Latter-day Saints materials. I'm sure they've paid to bump their stuff up. You think? Yeah. And, you know, they're just they're just kind of thoughtlessly pulling those stuff in. They're like, this this talks about Jesus positively. That has to be good, right? Like, well, you know, let's let's assess it, right? That's that's part of my job. But there are certainly jobs you can do that wouldn't necessarily go into that area and, and kind of just trying to be creative. Like, this person is a person whose faith is engaged through through their actions. How can I do that? And I think sometimes we have the habit in the Lutheran Church of saying, "Well, I'm not going to trust you with the work of the church until, you know, you've put in your time in in other ways." And and again, you're right. There's there has to be nuance there. There has to be discernment. There has to be judgment. I mean, I don't I don't discredit that at all. So he had people that were encouraging him, sure, and uh, and encouraging him in the correct channels, right? And I, you know, he is laying this out very quickly. This yeah. might have been a two-year process, right? It's, I mean, it seems like a pretty drawn-out one, which is fine. Yeah, and and I think like having a friend where you can have spiritual conversations and pray, even if over tacos Amen. or whatever. Amen. Those are those those have been very good for my faith. Life. Not that you need to eat tacos, right? It's the prayer and the time together, uh, being men of God. That's a good thing. But you know, he is ultimately, you know. It's interesting. Some of the later stuff was, I find, a little bit more, I was a little bit more skeptical of, you know, they, they're like, oh, we see your business acumen and we could see that being a benefit to the church. Well, there's maybe there's some truth to that, but it, it's interesting. Like he didn't come onto the pastor's radar until a little while later. Sure. And then they're like, we're, we just kind of keep bumping them up. We, we want to, I always think it is weird to talk about when you see pastoral potential in someone to talk about it as leadership it is not leadership 
at least in the way the world talks about leadership. This uh, this always just brings me to the thing. John, but it's a, John Maxwell fact. Sure, uh, but flashback. you just said it. I mean, this is a very evangelical way to look at things. And then on top of that, as you just said, I mean, the pastor in an evangelical church, he's so far removed from the people. Right. He's not like a Lutheran pastor who greets his folks at the end of the sermon and touches every one of them and looks into their eyes. It is so far removed from that. Yeah. Right. Which, but yet we still call him pastor. Right. Well, and, and I mean, they still are the pastor of that place. You know, there are good pastors and there are bad the pastors. He's the guest speaker. He is well, the speaker. That's well, all he is. Yeah. He's just the, the figurehead, the cult of personality. Context. Yeah. In this particular context, that's correct. And I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt as he tells this story. Well, we all know how you operate. I, I know. But you, you start off slow. <laughs> And then, and then I, if once I get mad, I'm mad. I, I understand. <laughs> well, what I say, well, we'll say here, like I mean, you know, to me, I, I take the Eighth Commandment very seriously. I want to put the best construction sure. on what this man is saying, sure, and I want to cast it in a positive light. And and there are some positive things in this story, but you know, what he's building to is a very interesting is a very interesting thing. And and what he has ultimately dodged, I think, so far, is. Uh, he's saying the turn happened when I went into ministry and he really, the turn happened somewhere else when he actually in repentance and faith turned to the Lord. But that's not part of this story at all, right? This is, this is like a uh, testimonial without any coming to Jesus. It's, it's a, it's coming to Chad. Well, or as soon as I came to Chad or it's coming into service. Right. And, and so this is interesting because at the beginning of this, we heard him doing an altar call that wasn't an altar call to believe in Jesus. It was an altar call to serve. And now we're hearing a testimonial that isn't a testimonial about how I came to Jesus and realized my sins were forgiven. It was a testimonial about how I realized my life of my life of service to God's church was the most fulfilling thing I could do. Well, Martin Luther had the exact same experience. The most important thing I could do is give my life over completely to God, become a monk, scrub those floors until they, sh- they shone, and everything else besides. And he realized that that was, that was empty. It was completely devoid. The only thing worth saying is Jesus found me. Not I started pursuing Jesus and good luck, good luck pursuing him. You're not, you're not going to get him. He's already gotten you. And I, and I guess what makes me sad is Jesus has changed this man's life. And I'm, I'm not going to be cynical and and pretend like he's not a christian and and clearly somewhere in this process if he was actually folding his arms and being judgmental of what this the pastor's sermons assuming that they were sermons that were built around christ and forgiveness which is a little bit of a stretch but you'd imagine that would be in there somewhere some way at least even with the altar call is that he came to faith and yet he he runs past that he's like that wasn't the most important thing me coming to faith it's the most important thing for any of our lives. The most important thing for any of our lives. I am struck by what you've said here. It reminds me of a book that uh, made waves in the evangelical world. Even though he was the Pentecostal stream, a lot of things that he said was right on. His name was Tommy Tinney, and his book was called The God Chasers. And we all read it because we were God chasers. But going back to your treadmill analogy that your wife uses... You can't catch him. No, the treadmill of works and the treadmill of right. service and all and anything right. we create for ourselves right. to, to to make ourselves right with God, it leads 
nowhere. It's work and work and work. And it's God chasers. And as you said earlier, you're the one who falls off the treadmill and it slaps you back to the back and you're, you know, you, you give up. Yeah. Because you're like, I can't catch him. You either spend your whole life exhausting yourself chasing him. Exactly. And, and, dying, and, and exactly. dying in the faith, kind of by the skin of your teeth. And that's where I would have been if I would have stayed in the evangelical world. That's, my wife is convinced that if she had stayed in evangelical, she would have been flown off the back of that thing and, right. and been in the worst place where she just right. gave up on God. Exactly. Said, you break your ankle and you're like, this is not. And then you walk with a limp for the rest of your life. You think, no, no way, no way. Yeah. What more can I do, Lord, to please you? Right. And the Lord says, nothing. I'm already pleased with you in Jesus. And you go, that's not enough. Get me back on the treadmill. <laughs> I know, right? Or I'm never getting on that treadmill again because I, exactly. I hate this God, which is exactly, exactly where Luther was. And I was too. Because you can't please him. Exactly. Yeah. And I want to share this today. I want you to catch this. For my life, there was a series of invitations that led to a complete transformation. I went from isolation to wholeness. And the reason why I share this story with you today, because I actually believe it illustrates a principle of transformation that a lot of Christians are actually missing in their lives. A lot of people think that church services are God's primary tool for transforming lives. It is a lie and deceit we fall into as Christians. But A lie and deceit? That's what he said. That is an overstatement. I know what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that God uses people. Okay. He does, but beyond the people, he uses his word and his and his sacraments, and he gives those things in church and in the worship service. And this is an awful thing to say, because this man, d despite all the people he names, what is happening at the exact same time? And just because he's too dumb to see it, and 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 I I mean that harshly, because you were going to church and you were hearing God's word for who knows how long. For Yeah, because this abbreviated story, who knows? And somehow he's going to stand there and, and boldface lie to these people and say, that wasn't what mattered. And it was because God has put a promise on his word. It will not return to him void. God's word accomplishes what it has uh, sent out to do. And it worked on him and it brought him to a point of faith. But again, he's not interested in the faith. He's interested in the encouragement. And is God's word always encouraging? No, sometimes God's word's like, you miserable sinner. Also, sometimes it's not encouraging. It's just, it's it's Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Neither of those things are encouraging in that human way, right? Like, you can do so much more than what you're doing right now. Sometimes God's like, you can't, but I did it for you. And that's a God-blessed thing to hear. And you need to hear that so that you, you can stop being on the treadmill and actually start walking the path of Jesus, right? Because the path of Jesus is, I have done it all for you. And the place you're going is eternity, not some spiritual mumbo jumbo. I've, I've arrived acting like you've arrived now. I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. We're still sinners who are longing for eternity. And we have a job to do in the meantime. And we, and it's a God blessed job and we appreciate it. And, and it's not the only God blessed job, moms, dads, uh, teachers, all kinds of any vocation, uh, that is a God-pleasing vocation, is a God-blessed thing. It, it breaks my heart that he's going to that he goes far enough to say that that is a deceit and a lie because what he's what he's saying is that's false teaching, and that's it's the exact opposite. The scripture is full of this, and and this is what happens, right? He's he's wanting to focus on something 
to encourage people to serve and to be there for other people, right? To be on the dream team because you don't know whose life you're going to change because you gladly waved your, your orange wands to park somebody into their parking spot. But even there, we see that it's not about the service. Uh, it's about the person who's willing to do kind of the harder job of not treating me as a project, of actually encouraging me day, day in, week in, and week out, come to church with me, come to church with me. The, the Lady Grace saying, you know, we've, I, I see you constantly, and, and I see my job as more than just getting people signed in and signed out for, for child care, right? I love you enough to kind of reach out to you. Or maybe I love you enough because I need somebody to <laughs> fill this role. But whatever, being generous, we'll assume that's it. You know, it's really just God's people being God's people. And how are they God's people? Well, they're informed in the word. And for him to miss that is wrong. It is. And, and he's denying scripture to do it, right? Everything is built on God's word. And for him to say that, to say that is a lie, I was like, who's the liar here? Where, let's go into scripture and find out uh, where are we supposed where are we supposed to go? Where's our foundation? Where's our starting point? And then yes, you see the fruit of it in the lives of other people, and that's a blessed thing. But to act like you could have the fruit without the foundation is just beyond the pale for him to say that. And again, so great, we have a second damnable thing to say uh, in this in this sermon. I mean, he he is turning people away from God's word. Uh, to a service that is a that's cut apart from it, right? I mean, how can you walk away with this and say, "All right, I've got to serve instead of listen to God's word," right? This is these are these stupid uh, dichotomies that we all, that we put Christians into all the time. You can do two things: you can sit there in the pew and receive God's word, or you can serve. Why not both? That's what God says is possible with Him, and I'm going to trust what God says, not what this Yahoo says. The Bible teaches us it's actually fellowship, it's intimate Christian community that truly heals us. We, for example, we see in James 5.16, and check this scripture out with me. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. It's the prayer of a righteous man that is powerful and effective. Oh my goodness, that text has to do with when somebody is sick in the congregation you call an elder of the church, i.e. the pastor, and you pray for them, you anoint their head with oil. That's what that's referring to. That's not referring to Chad inviting you to church and taking you out to lunch afterwards, which brings in the great transformation. What is he talking about? Well, and certainly that's the context is given in, right? Anointing with oil, which also gets misconstrued in that text because oil was medicinal in that time, right? I mean, they weren't just anointing him uh, because it was some mystical act. Well, right. But when someone calls me who is sick, I will anoint their head with oil. I don't think that the oil that I put upon their forehead, I just make the sign of the cross. Pastor Bruss has this really awesome little uh, vial that fits on the end of your finger okay. like those... Uh, Remember what are those? The pope rings. That's all I call them. No, the uh, uh, the thing that you put in your mouth. You know that. Oh, a uh, ring they, pop. Yeah, ring pop. It's <laughs> like a ring pop, and you open it up, and there's a little sponge in there, and you 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 put oil on the sponge. Okay. And the idea is is that you can kind of keep it with you without getting your hands all messy. Sure. The point is, you open up this thing, 
and you dab your finger and you make the sign of the cross upon the sick person and you pray. And I don't look at the person and say, well, you know, the oil in the Bible is medicinal. I look at it and say, this is what the scripture says. Right, but in fun, but fundamentally, where are we grounding it? We're not grounding it in the oil. We're no. not even grounding it in the prayer. We're grounding it in God's word that is informing both. Correct. And this is the problem of proof texting. Exactly. Is Thank you. He has grabbed a little bit of scripture that talks about God's people together. And healing. And healing. And then ele- he's, he's taken this, um, like a pry bar, like a crowbar, and he's pried it out of its context, yep. and he is elevating, as you said, proof texting, or uh, this is eisegesis, where he is taking this text, and he's saying, see, everybody, this is what transformed. Word and sacrament doesn't transform, it's fellowship. Right, and it is utterly ridiculous. Now, is it is it true? Is man, I mean, church is meant to be a communal experience, and part of that communal experience is us supporting and looking out for each other. It's us praying for each other. It's all those things. That is in Scripture. But for him to to go to Scripture and say, you don't need to hear Scripture because here's what Scripture says about it, it it's, it's self-defeating in its own right, but then also he's vastly ignoring, right? Where does faith come from, friend? Faith doesn't come from fellowship. Faith comes from hearing the Word of Christ. And... You can't just whistle past that text because you want to get people to serve. If And what we want people to do is to serve in faith. I guess if you don't care about people serving in faith, you just want warm bodies to be on your dream team, then this is a path you can go on. But it's it's a damnable path. And we need to wrestle with the fullness of Scripture. Again, understand where we're coming from. We're not sitting here saying he is wrong. What we are saying is he's incomplete. And his incompleteness makes him wrong. And it's so badly incomplete that it it actually misconstrues things and casts the thrust of what Scripture is calling us to be as Christians into the completely wrong place. As if somehow, it, it's shortcut nonsense. It's, it's you saying, you can be thin and healthy without going to the gym. It's saying, you can, you can be a well-read person uh, without reading and experiencing other great thought right? No, I can't be a good Christian unless I see what God wants for me in his word and the instruction he has. And and fundamentally, the faith that is instilled through the Holy Spirit that is working in that word, which is exactly what he received by sitting in the pew and which he is completely dismissing to these people sitting in church. And the most ridiculous thing is, wouldn't the takeaway from what he's saying right now be, well, great, I'm going to serve and never go to church again. Right. I'm going to be in a small group, and I'm going to be on the dream team, but you know, I'll sit out in the parking lot the entire time because there's no reason to come in here and hear the Word of God. Or why be on the dream team? Why not just go down to the uh, to the food bank sure. on Sunday morning? Sure. Why not just serve, serve, serve? If, if church is a is a if the importance of church is a lie, then your Sunday mornings are better spent serving. So is this man a false teacher or not? Well, yeah. Right now he is. He has to be. This is this these are errors that are so large that they would drive you into hell. And that's that's important. Again, if he had just said, you know, we always talk about the word and how important it is, and it is, but I wanna, you know, I wanna overemphasize fellowship, right? I would say, okay, that's not great, but it's not necessarily like 
false teaching in in this way that like you're you're directly leading people to hell but he's gone beyond that he has said we have deceived people by telling them that hearing god's word is fundamental to their to their faith and their life with god and that is literally what the bible says faith from, comes from hearing the word of christ you see here we we see healing is a result of confession and prayer not just to god but to other christians and, and i just wondered today how many people lack true healing in their life because they lack horizontal confession of sin for me, as, a, as an un, immature believer in my life, thinking I had it all figured out because I was a pastor's kid that grew up in the religion of going to church, I, I actually knew I was so mature and I had it all figured out. I was hoping that God would just simply take my issues away from some sermon podcast or some altar experience. Otherwise, it would just be too embarrassing for me to uh, submit my, my struggles to anybody else. And let's be honest, it's... It actually did not ever change. It actually just drove me into further isolation. Growing up, I was hoping that just maybe another tear-filled worship service would actually do the trick in my life. Perhaps I just needed to read another book or, or memorize another scripture. But, but let's get honest here. What I really needed was confession of sin, true accountability in my life. Amen? We, we see all throughout Scripture, we see it in James and 1 Peter, and we see it in the Psalms and actually 15 different other references where, where Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? We believe that. This is what blew me away when I first heard this sermon. He's, he's, it's like he, it's like that old game that you play with your kids and that your parents played with you about you're warmer and now you're colder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's, it's like he gets warmer when he talks about the confession of sins, right? Yeah. I mean, he is getting warmer and you and I, are, our eyes are, 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 are getting wide. We're like, yes, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer, you know. But I'll be doggone, he's going to start moving away from it. And you as the parent, when you watch your kids do this, you start yelling, you're getting colder, you're getting colder, you're freezing. And it's like he doesn't turn around and go back. Yeah. We know this. The evangelical church does not have the, the same picture of confession absolution that we have. In fact, they really don't have a picture of confession absolution, right? Because that's Catholic. Well, in their picture is telling telling my sins to Chad. Right. Who's and, not going to be able to offer you forgiveness. He's not going to offer absolution. He's just going to go, man, I hear you. But to Chad's credit, he said, I don't I don't know what to do. Let's go to church. Right. But Which, when he hears when he hears Lipless's sins, he doesn't know what to do with them. Exactly so. Uh, but at least he said, but I know, but I know where you're supposed to go which is the place that he's dismissing utterly right now, right? And this litany of complaints against the evangelical church, to a way, I'm like, yeah, amen, right? Even his own father as a pastor. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's real tough. Like, I know, one more altar call, one more podcast, one more tear-filled sermon, right? Those emotionally manipulative sermons. I, Right, those are all things that we have experienced and at some way or another, and we've rejected because they're not good for God's people. And and so his that criticism is correct, but he's using that, he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater because this is this is the only idea of church he's ever had. And 
we have confessed absolution. I wonder what he would think. He, I, pre- I bet he doesn't think highly enough because it's not specific enough. And frankly, it's not, is the corporate confession and absolution where we all say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. It, it's not specific enough. And I, know it, and I know that because when you go and talk to people about their specific poor, miserable sins, they get a little wound up. They're like, hey, pastor, like back off. But we have something else beyond that. And this is the true application of confession and absolution is God in his wisdom has put a person in your midst, in that congregation, whose job is to, to be there to hear you talk about your sin and to not cast you out of the church because you're, you're not going to be useful to the ministry, right? Or their picture of the, the, what it's supposed to look like or their dream team. Their job is to receive that and then to proclaim God's absolution as if Christ himself proclaimed it and say, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, it's interesting. We're doing Genesis and we're talking about the performative word, right? God says, let there be light. And there was light. When God says you are forgiven, that's, that's the same performative word. It's, it's, it's not an abstraction. I don't, I want you to, I want you to think about being forgiven. I want you to go home and pray about being forgiven. This is the kind of garbage stuff we talk about. Or do you feel forgiven? Oh, right. Amen. That is awful. You are forgiven. No matter what you think, no matter what you feel, you are forgiven because Jesus is the one doing it, not you. Amen. (laughs) And how powerful is that? And we have this in the church and, and it is a sad reality that not enough of our own members take advantage of it. Can I tell you, when I learned what you just said, this was so, um, I didn't have words uh, to be able to express how unbelievable this truth is that you've been explaining. I was an evangelical pastor who would preach two services on Sunday morning. I started attending the service on Saturday night at the Lutheran Church. And it was simply so I could go and confess my sins in, as you say, in a very general public way. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I was opposed to a private specific way, but on Sunday night at six, on Saturday night at six o'clock, it was a general public confession of sins. And to hear the absolution fall from this pastor's lips like manna from heaven was the absolute most beautiful thing I could ever hear. And that, by the way, going back to my hatred towards God, my my seething kind of cauldron-like despisal, I guess, of God, uh, this is what began to get me out of that. It was the assurance that God was giving me in the absolution. Yeah. And I love that that's a that's a present reality every Sunday. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not done with that. I haven't seized this wonderful thing that God has put in front of me and made my life fuller. I am my life is constantly being filled by God's unrelenting willingness and desire to forgive me time and time again. And it goes back to what you've already said. I mean, my cup runneth over, not onto the floor. This allows me to then forgive others. Yes. 
And so our life of fellowship me. is lived right. out in this reality. Right. And, and, and that's the, that's, that's the trick is he's finding stuff in himself. He's like, Oh, somebody recognized what's in me. I mean, we all have God given talents, but those God given talents are meaningless and used for nothing but ash and rot, except that Christ has redeemed them and gathered them. Where are good works? Who makes our good works? Do we make our good works? No, God makes our good works. He, he, he made them for us before the foundation of the world. He knows what he has. He, he made us to do. And we take up that task uh, cheerfully uh, and also fitfully. And we are and, and we rejoice that we are forgiven because we never do the works uh, as well as God would intend us to do them. That's perfectly. But Christ's forgiveness and Christ's death on the cross, uh, the salvation that we find there fills in every gap. And and what a blessing that is. And and you, you you'll notice through all of this time in church uh, and this journey he's had. As far as I can re- recall and remember, Jesus has not come up. The cross has not come up. Uh, what God has done for him has not come up. And that is a great void in, in this teaching. Is it's, it, it really is this picture, and, and it, it, it saddens my heart. Is All of this gets put in the rearview mirror because really fundamentally all he's preaching is self-help. But guess what the, 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 the key ingredient is? And, and just take a while, Gus. The key ingredient to humility is humiliation. It's the ability to actually experience hum, humiliation. Or I would say it like this. It's the willingness to experience humiliation. It was actually pretty embarrassing to sh- share my secret sins with other people. But it was the access of removing shame from my life that led me to true freedom. For my life, I, I wanted to believe that knowledge was my biggest problem growing up. Well, think about it. Is knowledge usually our issue? Usually, usually it's not. For example, let me share this with you. We all know we should eat healthy, right? We know that. We all know we should eat spinach and kale. That equals good. Brits donuts equals bad. I had three yesterday. We all know that we should be reading our Bible and we should be praying and, and we should be working out every day. But are these the disciplines of our life? Are they? Let me point this out. Knowledge is not always the problem. Rather, it's accountability. It's realness. It's, it's, it's prayer with other people. You need friends. And I, ha- I got this in my life finally. You need friends that could look you in the eye and say, how are you really doing? Let me help you. Let me help you. My breakthrough in life was actually the application of God's scripture. It was not just having knowledge in my heart. I finally had spiritual friends that could get in my life and take a brave step with me. And, they, and, and in doing this, I spilled my soul. And over the next several years, I experienced amazing amounts of healing in my life. Because of that healing and that process of, of what I, I, I felt like a place of joy and a, a place of freedom and a place of restoration, who could use more joy in this room today? Who could use more freedom in this room today? Who needs peace in their life? And, and I went through this process. I, I began to just kind of come up with this, this principle, and I'd love to share this with you today. You'll see it on the screen. I call it the humiliation principle. 
The degree to which you are willing to humiliate yourself is the degree to which God's grace is dispensed in your life. Or to say it another way, you rise to the level of your own humiliation. And listen, I'm not talking about being silly and being immature, but I I do think this. If you're willing to get authentic about the things you struggle with, I promise you, and I'm inviting you into that faith step today, I promise you, God responds. God responds. Well, this is just law and gospel poorly presented. Uh, this humiliation principle that he's come up with is, is nothing more than law and gospel. And, and by that, I mean, what's he saying? Right? The deeper your willingness to humiliate yourself. Well, I, I don't know what that means, right? Uh, but let's, let's look at it scripturally. Ephesians, your willingness to live in the life, to live in the truth, and to say who you are, not the, not the masks, not the facades that you've built up to protect yourself. And, you know, the, the sad thing to me is he's still using some of these today. I mean, he's been very generic and vague about these sins. Clearly, at other times, he's been very specific, and that has, that's painful. And it is painful. I don't, I've never experienced a, con, a private confession absolution that wasn't tearful and, and, and hard. And there wasn't times when the person had to pause and think and say, am I really going to say this thing that I've never spoken out loud before, uh, that I'm afraid to even say to myself? Now, that's one of the things I say to people is, is the best thing you can do if you're struggling with private confession is, is to go out someplace where you know you're utterly alone and find some hole somewhere and, and just speak, speak that truth into that hole so your own ears can hear it so that it, at least it's been said because it's, it's in your head. You know it's there. All the, all the struggle is there. Uh, but to actually give voice to it is is the hardest thing. And Satan's the one trying to convince you there's no way you can ever say this to anybody else because this changes everything. And all it changes is that he's right. It it changes how 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 we appreciate God's grace. And and he's he's mischaracterized it. God's grace isn't contingent upon that. God's grace is always super abundant and more than I ask for. But from a human perspective, from my perspective, my appreciation of it grows. And we say this in law and gospel. I don't want a tiny God who forgives tiny things. If I have a tiny God who forgives tiny things, then you can turn your back on that. But if I see myself as a poor, miserable sinner, worthy of death, worthy of judgment, and and on my way to hell, and then I look at the cross and I say, but no more. Jesus has actually solved an impossible problem for me, a problem I could never solve for myself. He has taken all the sin and all the shame and all the loss and all the failure and all the awful, rotten things I've done. And he says, I died for that. Yes, my, the, my understanding of God's grace is magnified. The grace didn't change. The grace is always bigger. And you learn that as a Christian. You're like, oh, wait, God's grace is bigger than I thought it was. I thought God's grace was big. And now it's even bigger today, right? It, it just keeps magnifying because it never runs out. And, and this is what the law does. It confronts us. It accuses us. And, and, and it makes us be very specific about our failures. And humiliates us. And it does humiliate us. But I don't humiliate myself. Right. The law does it. Right. And the, the law comes and then, it makes, and then it makes it so that I can finally say, all right, everything I've been pretending at, here's the truth. And, and, he's, and, he's, and he's saying that. And I commend him for saying that because there's truth in that. But it's a, he's transmitting it in a very garbled way. 
And again, he's transmitting it in a damnable way because he's trying to point you away from from scripture because he cannot imagine in his own head. And 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 this is important. Think about all the awful burdens he's just heaping on these people as we go forward. He's saying, "Look, I've done it. I've I've figured out authentic Christianity. There are a goodly number of the people there who are still struggling with all of this, who are still." wondering about all of this who are just like i'm just trying to hear about this jesus person because i i don't know can i be forgiven for the stuff i've done because i've done some real messed up stuff right and he's saying and he's just kind of waving his hands like no you need to you need to get into this authenticness and as a pastor you know you you deal with people in all kinds of states uh, spiritual states right faith states uh, uh, uh all kinds of things and if I was like this, you know, you'd be like categorizing them, right? Oh, uh, uh, this family is, is in this garbage place. And I don't have the full picture. I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what they're struggling with. But somehow I've decided, right, this is the category you belong in. And it's just, you, you just heap, heap, heap. And how much better is it to let Christ come in and just be Christ and, and forgive them? And, and let's, let's lose all this authentic, inauthentic garbage, and, and you know what's authentic? Christ forgiving sins. And sometimes it happens in that weepy sermon. And sometimes it happens uh, in an altar call. I mean, people's lives have been changed in altar calls. I don't deny it. It happens sometimes in a, in a turgid German hymn, <laughs> right? That's proclaiming the truth of God. Uh, it, happens, it happens in places where worship is happening in a way that you don't think it should happen, right? Because, yeah, we, we can be a little judgmental about uh, the, the DJ and the rapping, uh, right? That strikes me as very silly. But I guarantee at you— At church they, at 9 o'clock? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you that these people would come to our church and be like, this is, this is dead. I'm like, there's nothing dead happening here, brother. There is—Christ is present here. It's more alive than—this is whitewashed tomb stuff, is, is I guess the point, right? He's saying— Look, you gotta you gotta have all this stuff, and you don't need God's word. God's word is what fills you with life. That's where you stop being a whitewashed tomb. You actually become a living, full-formed human being that God wants you to be. It kind of reminds me in Scripture we see this story in Luke five, and uh, it's the story of the paralytic man. We've heard this story, and Jesus heals him. And as we look at this story, what's happening here in, in Luke five seventeen is Jesus was actually teaching at Peter's house in Capernaum. The house was so full of people, no one could get in or out of the house. People just gathered around Jesus. Who knows, there's something infectious about Jesus Christ. There's something that makes people wanna come to him. I actually believe there's power and authority in the name Jesus. He has a plan and purpose for each and every one of you. People would come around him, he would heal the sick, he would be teaching that the kingdom of God is coming. Well, outside this house, there was this paralyzed man, and there was no way for this paralyzed man to get in and out of the house. And, and so he had friends that started suddenly digging through the roof and started lowering him before Jesus. I mean, how, how many would freak out if someone cut a hole in this roof and just started lowering a man down right now in this moment? I don't know about you. In Minnesota, we call that vandalism. That's illegal. And so finally, they lowered the friend down before Jesus. And listen, instead of rebuking the men for destroying another man's property, Jesus asked actually healed their paralytic friend. But here's the point. I, I believe many times we look at this story and we highlight the paralytic healing. But I, I'd like to highlight another section of that story. I actually think this story may be about the friends of the paralytic man. 
not the forgiveness of sins. No. Which Jesus himself no. says is the point. Are you tricking? Did 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 the evangelical world get some kind of memo I that know. this is the the highlight miracle for I the know. next for the next few years? Like, yeah. this is the miracle because because you gotta have friends, right? I mean. I, it is stunning to me that here, after we just did a podcast not that long ago. I don't even remember yet. what it was called. But uh, didn't we look at uh, like a montage of, of sermons that all focused on the friends? People saying the exact same stupid thing he's saying and missing the point about the forgiveness of sins, which was the crisis point. It's what made people angry. It's, it's everything. And it's the most important thing. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. But no, let's talk about the friends. And the question's going to be, do you have friends like that? I mean, think about it. It takes a lot of guts to rip through another man's roof to see your friends healed and made whole. How many of you here would do something illegal in your life to see your friend healed? Put your hand up with me. How many in this room today would do something illegal just for fun? We have prayer available for you later. And so, <laughs> as I think about this, but seriously, listen, everyone. These guys love their friends so much that they would do anything to see their friend whole. And I remember when I first heard this story, I read this scripture, I, I felt like the Lord speak to me. That is what church is all about. Do you have friends that would rip through a roof for you? And ever since reading that, I, I just thought about, I, I just felt like the Lord said to me, Nate, that is what I intended my church to be. I, I don't, I don't merely think of church anymore as just worship experiences or Bible teachings, and all of those are so great and so important, but I do think about this. I think about righteous community. I think about a group of friends who would go crazy out of their way to see you healed and made whole. And guess what? I want to share this with you. It's kind of crazy. Uh, statistics actually confirm this approach to church. Check this out. The number one statistical predictor of spiritual growth is actually how many intimate Christian friends that you have at any given moment in your life. More than services attended, more than scriptures memorized, more than any other spiritual discipline, intimate Christian community equals transformation. Listen, you can take two people and teach them the same quantity of God's word, but the one that has more intimate spiritual friends is more likely to apply that word in their life. And where do you get those friends? You, you meet them at church. And you struggle with each other and, and you do all these, but you do it, but you, you still see the source, right? Which is what he's still ignoring. He's like, oh, those things are still important, but he's already told us that it's a horrible lie to believe that these things are good. Yeah, but then he said later, those are good things. Well, this is the cross talking we do. He, he's, he can't actually fully deny it because I mean, that would be wrong, right? It would also put him out of a job, right? So maybe, but... Where do you find Christian friends? You find them at church. Aren't the Christian boys the ones that we want our Christian daughters to, to marry? I, I mean, that's what I would like. And it's, it's just such an utterly strange thing to me that somehow you can, you can have the, the one, all these wonderful Christian supportive friends without the other. When he met all of these wonderful friends in his church around worship and being in God's word. He's not wrong that, of course, just stuffing my brain full of biblical knowledge. There's plenty of people that don't believe in God who yeah, know what the Bible says. Right. But, but it's but that's 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 such a, a such a stripped down idea, and it's it's just it's it's 
to me, it's just boring and silly. Oh, sure. And I mean, it's the same thing that a guy would say who did not go to seminary. Let's say he went to a Bible college and got a youth ministry degree. You know, he turns around and he says, well, none of Jesus' disciples went to seminary. Those three years they spent with Jesus were for nothing, right? Right, right. And and again, God can work through lots of people in lots of strange ways. But don't don't take a a wee-wee on knowledge. Yeah. I mean, when you when you talk about uh, having private confession and absolution with someone, and let's say somebody uh, presents to you a particular sin, I mean, not that you have to do this as the pastor. I mean, what you have to do is uh, give them absolution, and number two, keep it to yourself. But isn't it nice to have a pastor who knows his Bible well enough to say, friend, I want to give you these verses to consider regarding the sins that you have not only confessed but also been absolved of. Yeah. And then the the parishioner says, "Okay, I want to I want to take a look at those when I when I get home." I mean, isn't it nice to have a pastor who is conversant enough with his Bible who's not pulling out his phone and Googling texts in the midst of a private confession and absolution saying, I know there's a Bible verse that deals with that. Well, and it's it's a powerful and good point because he's talked about how important it is for us to confess our sins to one another. Uh, but he has not talked about what the content of that response should be. And, you know, we, we understand that. Like, you could be disgusted. You could be lost. I don't know what to do, right? Uh but I, but I know you should go to church. Well, okay, that's good. But what happens if you don't say that second part? You're like, that's that's a real bummer, man. Uh, I, you know, we all got stuff we're dealing with, and and so again, he's he hasn't really brought us to where we need to be brought. He's saying we need each other, but what we need each other is we need each other in God's word. I want a, a real friend is someone who isn't just there to hear me confess my sins, but is to say to me, yeah, God's word says. That is a grievous and damnable thing, um, but but it is forgiven in Jesus Christ, and uh, you should go to the pastor and confess it too. Receive that absolution as from Christ Himself. Um, more often than not, what, what's the takeaway from this is going to be? This is the real danger here: is you just become a bunch of people that are nice to each other and never challenge each other on sins, or you know, you you let your sins be nice surface level sins, right? Like. The, the, the sins that we're all kind of okay with, like, I gossip a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah you do, Myrtle, and you ought not to do that. But, you know, we love you anyway. Yeah, come on. And, and, you know, Myrtle doesn't stop gossiping. And, and you know, you're not really – and Myrtle hasn't really told the truth of her problems. But, this, but the problem in the evangelical world is, I mean, he's right in a sense that there is a true authenticity about being real with your mess. I mean, that that's – Sure. He's right where we're not just telling people we're doing fine, but it is people who actually say, no, how are you really doing? I'm, I'm using his words that he used earlier. Yeah. When somebody is, quote, unquote, I don't necessarily like this, but our, our audience understands it. You know, when you're real with somebody else, basically when you're just telling the truth, there's nothing that can be done regarding that. You're basically just pulling up your sleeves and you're saying, just for sake of illustration, man, look at this poison ivy that I got here by work, walk, working in the yard. I mean, it is oozing. 
it is red, it's inflamed. This is my forearm and arm right now. That's what you're doing. And the only thing the other person can do is, oh, looks pretty bad. There's nothing else that they can do. Well, there is. They can they can point to Jesus. But but they won't. But they're is not that, equipped to do that. Right. That's my point. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I absolutely They've agree. They've never heard that before. But, because they were taught that when they came to faith in Jesus Christ and were saved by accepting him into their heart, that's when he took care of the poison ivy. Right. And so to say that he has it now... It's like, that must have not been real. And so now what I'm doing is the real thing. And this is why he's making this hard split between what was and what is. And he's saying, there's no way God could have been working through that because I was still a sinner. And this is this wonderful Lutheran advantage we have. We've already talked about it this, at the same time, Satan sinner. I'm not pushing my sin away. And, and that's why it's such a damnable thing to say, because you have to, if, if you finally do confront the problem and you say, this is sin still, then you you have to do something new to actually be with Jesus, and that's authentic. And we've we've heard sermons like this before, where you know you get baptized when you're twelve. Well, what did I know when I was twelve? I'm eighteen now. I've I've got this figured out. And then, so you get rebaptized, and this is authentic. And then twenty seven year old you says, What did I know when I was eighteen? That was that was real dumb. I'm gonna get rebaptized because this is authentic. And, and on and on you go, and now you're, you know, you're 44, and things are still not completely worked out. And you're like, I got to get myself really right with God this time. I, I thought that was authentic, but this is the real authentic. And it's just, it's the worst lie you can tell yourself, is that somehow it's my authenticity that sure. makes God work. And instead of looking back at the original baptism and saying, God did something wonderful for me there. I haven't appreciated it for what it is, sure. But its authenticity has always been there. I have grown to appreciate its authenticity today. I don't need something new because it's always been there. And and then we're not doing this stupidly divisive thing, which happens in the evangelical church all the time. I mean, he's undercutting his own father to get there, right. which I think is shameful. It is. From the, he's not honoring his father at no. all. He's like, my father is this person who caught, taught dead Christianity. Right. And this is why the evangelical church is obsessed with that was dead. This new thing is new. Right. And guess and guess what the next generation is going to say about him? Thank you. That's dead. Right. This is real. Right. And the we as Lutherans and kind of the established church, so a lot of them have lost their way, but the established church that has some history says, yeah, we've we've messed up, but God has always been good throughout it all. God didn't have to give them the law at Sinai again when he brought them back from Babylon. He says, it's it's the same thing still, right? Even when Jesus came and, and he did fulfill the law, it's not like he said, hey, I'm, I'm abolishing all that. Here's this brand new thing that has nothing to do with the old. He's like, no, here, I, I'm the fulfillment of the old and, and the promise of, of, a, of, of a, new, a new promise of, of return and, and eternal life. And the, this is such a modern obsession, and, and it makes sense that it would be in the evangelical church, right? I don't care about the past. All I want is, all I care about is today and, and tomorrow. Life and, abundantly. And guess what? Tomorrow's going to tomorrow's gonna look back at you and say, you're the past, and you don't matter either. Mm-hmm. And it's such a shameful thing. And, and what a blessed thing it is to be able to look at the past and say, and there's lots of flaws in there. Right. I'll give you an example. We had a young couple come into our church. This is at our evangelical church, and I think this says a lot about us, which is, in my opinion, quite nice, but in his opinion was quite bad. He said, um, man, this church, it, it it's kind of like my grandmother's church. 
Amen. Yeah. Lutherans wear that as a badge of honor, right? You know, it's we're, like... We're your grandfather's church. Right. And my, my thought was, you mean like we actually believe the Bible and we preach the Bible and we, we sing hymns? You mean like that? That That's what it means, you know? Yeah. It's right. crazy. You're, I want to circle back to one thing real quick. Yeah. Uh, my illustration, I'm sure our audience knows, uh, you know, we talk about poison ivy, poison oak. Once the oil interacts with the skin and the irritation comes, it's going to go away by itself. I mean, you can put stuff, something on it yeah. to, to hurry it up a little bit. But but what we're talking about is actually sin. And the Bible, interestingly enough, does not call it poison oak, but really it it's more like leprosy, meaning that there it's a disease that no man can yeah. cure. Well, and I think, you know, it, what I do, getting back to my first point is, we're saying, look at my poison ivy mm-hmm. when I know that I have cancer. Right. And you're like, this, I want to focus on this thing that I know is going to fix itself anyway, right, right, because right. The, because this is the polite stuff. Right. Well, and it's really, really bothering me. The cancer I don't necessarily feel right now, but yeah. uh, but the poison yeah. ivy is driving yeah. me. Nuts. I, I know this isn't the thing that's going to kill me, but it's the thing I'm going to look at, and the thing that's going to kill me, I'm just going to not talk to anybody about. <laughs> right, right. And and we do this to ourselves all the time. It's because sin makes us stupid every day of the week. Amen. It's and we see that in James, just like I shared. When righteous people get together and have honest confession and prayer, what is it? It is powerful, and it is effective. And, and what's crazy about this? Uh, it doesn't actually, intimate supportive friends don't only benefit you spiritually, but physically as well. Research also shows that uh, isolation is one of the, the, the quickest ways to shorten your life expectancy. Did you know that? For example, did you know that your odds of surviving cancer, heart disease, and stroke literally doubles based on how many intimate supportive friends you have in your life? Isn't that crazy? In fact, a lack of social relationships jeopardizes coronary health to a degree that rivals cigarette smoking, high blood pressure, blood lipids, obesity, and lack of physical exercise. I mean, wow. So you're telling me uh, as long as I have some close intimate friends, I can be an obese chain smoker? Well, probably not. But ironically, medical research says socially isolated people are four times more susceptible to the common cold than those who have active social networks. It's, it's insane. Maybe God actually knew what he was doing to put us in relationship with other people. Research found that people with strong social ties have a 400% immune system advantage over isolated people. And what I'm saying here is isolation, I, I just want you to hear this church, lean in with me here. Isolation has serious risks. God did not design us to do life alone. He designed us for intimacy with other peoples. He's designed us to be together in righteous community. We are not Zoom calling into heaven. It's a physical reality where we're with people. He has called us to be in relationship together to grow in our faith, to get set free from the addictions and shame that has held us down, to step into true freedom. And church, without connectivity with other people, I I want you to hear this today. I I I truly believe that healing and wholeness are always going to feel elusive in our lives. At some point, we are gonna need to return to God's solution. 
We need the biblical prescription of what healing really is. And it's, it's the church. It's, it's confession of sin. It's, it's, it's praying with other righteous people. And uh, after all that we've been through the, the last 18 months, we can naively just think that, that somehow isolated people are just gonna go back to normal. But I guarantee you this, there are tens of millions of people that are gonna be staying in isolation because that is the deceit of the enemy and what he wants them to do. He knows it will kill them. There are millions of Christians that are saying, you know, I'm just going to watch online and never connect into community. I'm never going to get into a small group. I'm never going to get on a dream team. I'm never going to go through connect. I'm never going to take a next step. I feel like God sent me here today to give you a personal invitation into transformation. I believe that God has purpose and provision for your life. I'm sorry. I really wanted to let him continue to go on, but it just drives me crazy. One of the things we have to be recognizing here is that at this point, this message is utterly Christless. And so he can talk about what is true healing. It's the church. Okay, what does that mean? It's community. It's confession. All of those things. Which are wonderful things. Which are wonderful things, but he's communicating them in such a human way that... These are things you can get at the bar. Sure. It's, you know, you, hey, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, right? And they're always glad you came. And what do you do? You go to the bartender, you talk about your troubles, confession, right? And he says, that's real tough. There's no absolution. That's, we're still missing that piece. Without the means of grace, why do we gather in church on Sunday? We gather in church on Sunday for God to serve us with his gifts. And he doesn't see that. He doesn't understand. He just sees it as us getting together as a community, uh, a righteous community. But what makes us righteous? Is it is it my righteousness? Is it your righteousness? No, it's the righteousness of Christ being laid upon us in these gifts of God. That's what makes us a righteous community. And what we keep seeing is this church isn't the real deal. Uh, this church over here is because they have real relationships. They're not just a community. They're a righteous community. Uh, they're not just people. They're genuine people. And and we see this all the time where you, you just have a vanguard of people that go from one new church to another every two, three, four years. And what are they doing? They're chasing the real. And... Right, every single organization you get involved in, essentially you're going to start to see the cracks. It's just like dating, right? I mean, it's just like they're just dating churches. <laughs> I love being a part of a church where we've got problems, we have flaws, we're not perfect, but the people there are sticking and they're fighting and they're working to make it better. To me, that's way more genuine than this kind of like, well, let's just keep chasing something new. And this idea of transformation, well, what transforms? I mean, I don't even know what he thinks transforms us, except I'm, I get transformed by choosing to step up into service. No, I'm transformed by word and sacrament. I'm transformed by God challenging me, especially in his word, and saying, you can be something other than what you are. Not in yourself, because in yourself you're a dead sinner, but because of Christ, because you are a child of God and your baptism, 
because you are strengthened and preserved in the true faith and the Lord's Supper, here's a whole new way of living your life. Now, that is transformative, but it's transformative in a very different way than what he's talking about, and I think a much quieter way, and, and certainly not just the only way that you can be a transformed person is by doing the programs that we've put before you for transformed people to participate in, right? It's not be a good husband or wife. It's come to our small group, be on the dream team, go through the transform network, whatever that might be. It's it's this whole idea that the only way that you're really being the church is when you're working for me. Listen, I don't think we fulfill James 5.16 by disengaging from church. And, and, and I get it. For my life, it wasn't circumstances in this world. It was a cynical heart, to be honest with you. But listen, I needed an invite back. I needed friendship. I needed ownership. I needed intimacy with other people. I needed to slide down the slippery creek bank of transformation that we see in James 5.16. And I believe that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that you have connections with if it's not your own life, other people that need an invitation to be planted in physical church. We need to create opportunity for people to get connected into their healing, amen? Amen, there's one last story to demonstrate this today. Heard this story a long time ago about this woman, a Jamaican woman. She lived in the island of Jamaica with these little kids and just like a lot of moms, she had three little kids that they were all under the ages of five and she was busy with the feeding cycles and diapers and the busyness of life. We've all been there. I mean, just like when you have little kids, it's like everything goes chaotic. And so she was raising her little kids. And while she was taking care of these three little kids one day and a friend was over with her, she all of a sudden fell over in a paralytic stroke. She's laying on the floor and she's completely, her eyes are just wide open, her tongue's hanging out. Her friend's standing there and they know that there's no medical care in, in the area. There's no doctors and she didn't she literally didn't know what to do the three kids are asking what happened to my mommy and, and and the friend began to panic and she ran and got a few other friends and brought them over to the house and, and no one literally knew what to do in the moment no one could help her but one friend had an idea he says well listen I, I have a wheelbarrow what if we put her in the wheelbarrow and we get her somewhere and another friend said well I heard about this preacher that's preaching on uh, on a town just several villages away he's preaching on a stage in a service and apparently some people have been healed there what if we actually put her in the wheelbarrow and we wheeled her over to that church and we we, we got her prayed for and, and they're like okay that's the best idea we have and they, they put blankets in the wheelbarrow and they began to lay her her comatose lifeless body in that wheelbarrow and they began the trek of several miles to get her to this church. It was late at night when they got there and church service is going on and people are listening to a pastor and the back door is open in this metal building and the friends are there with her crying and the children are with her. She's laying there lifeless, comatose. They begin to wheel her straight down the aisle as the pastor is preaching and brought her up front and they just literally set her in front of the preacher. And they said, would you pray for our friends? Would you pray for our friend? Would you pray for our friend? We need to see her healed. Her little kids need her. Her little kids need her. And the pastor, so moved by their faith, so moved by how crazy you would disrupt a service, you would interrupt everything that's happened. He was so moved by that moment that he looked down at Vita and he said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and be healed. Every place, the whole place was on pins and needles. Everyone was leaning in. The place was so quiet, nothing happened. 
People began to weep around the auditorium. The friends are standing there crying. And the pastor in faith said it again, in the name of Jesus, stand up and be healed. And all of a sudden, the whole room heard this deep breath and eyes opened and Vita stood up completely healed and made whole. Come on, we can celebrate the miraculous work of God. I thought about this story, thought about my own life. I thought about how in many ways my own life was paralyzed. And in my own way, my life was just arrested and, and, and not even be able to communicate what was wrong with me, not even be able to communicate the needs that I truly have. I, I actually was that paralyzed woman. I was that paralyzed friend that couldn't get before Jesus. And, I, and I'm thinking about this story, oh, to have friends like Vita McKenzie. Listen, a lot of people divine success in this world by their bank accounts. And I, I just urge you, church, so many people define their success by what they possess and their jobs and their circumstances. But I urge you, church, to think about this. I actually believe it's Christian fellowship. I, I think it's kind of like the story of the paralyzed man in Luke 5. He simply could not get to Jesus. But he had friends that were willing to dig through a roof to see him healed. And so I ask you this question boldly today. Do you have friends that would rip through a roof for you? Do you have friends that would take your lifeless, comatose body, put it in a wheelbarrow and get you before Jesus to see you healed and made whole? Because if you can't give me an affirmative yes, then for all practical purposes, you're an unchurched Christian. Pastor Oakry, I told you at the outset of this last little bit that the wheels really fall off. You're rubbing your temples. What is going oh. on here? Okay. That last line is so bad because he's trying to define the church. And, of course, we've got the stirring music coming up. Oh, all yeah. This stuff. Mood music. As Chris Rosebro would say, it is the... It's the Holy Spirit now descending upon the yeah. audience as they make a decision. Which makes it all the worse because we're putting this uh, this idea that there's we're, we're at the emotional height and this is the really important thing. And, and this is an awful definition of the church. The definition of the church isn't, I have really good friends. Unbelievers have really good friends. Sure. Uh, it, this, is, this is crazy. I mean, just because this guy... Didn't have good friends when he was off making all his money. Doesn't mean that some people don't. And and you, you can walk away from this thinking, well, I've got I've got great friends. I've got. But 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 what if you don't? I mean, what if you just heard this? And I mean, look, most men do not have good friends. Right. I mean, they had them when they were young, when they were single, all of that. My point is, is that married life. And the children that come with it really begin to push the friend thing to the margins. It really is the this is your vocation as father and as husband, and it doesn't even come close to being uh, a friend. And so, I could easily see tons of guys hearing this and thinking, "I don't have any close friends." Right. The shame that's attached to that. I mean, right. not that you don't want to be a friend. It's just that now is not the appropriate season to have that. I've had those seasons where I've been very focused on work and home. And I, I didn't feel a great lack because there was a lot of good stuff anyway. So he's painting a picture for himself. And 
it's just very interesting because I'm sure that he had people that he would have called friends before too, but you kind of those are kind of very shadowy outlines, right, as we move forward. But the very strange thing here is is just how he's defining church because of course the very first time you come to church, are you going to make best friends? No. It unlikely, right? Yeah, because and I always, I've, I say this to people all the time because they're like, people weren't very friendly to me at the church. And I said, well, yeah, you showed up at right at time for church and you you left right after church ended. And in that middle time when you were with us and we were very glad to have you, uh, we had we had a job to do. We had a task before us. Let's put it that way. And that task was receiving from the Lord and singing his praises. Our task was not let's welcome the new person. That's for before church and after church. And this is our fellowship. We invited you to come and be a part of that to the best of your ability, uh, depending on where you're coming from. But that's our fellowship. This It isn't the friends. It's that we have a God that we can gather around. It, it's utterly bizarre to me. Did, do you think People came to the temple in the Old Testament looking for friends? No, they were looking for the forgiveness of their sins. What do you think the Ethiopian eunuch was looking for? Right. He must have been he must have bawled his eyes out when, <laughs> when his new friend Philip was whisked away by the whole, No Lord, you've taken the church away from me. No, he was baptized into Christ and he and he sang the praises of the Lord. And and this is the thing. So I, I just want to take this opportunity because we have such a beautiful definition of the church. Uh, and straight from our confessions, what is the church? It is the place where the word of God is preached purely and the sacraments administered rightly. And so what a definition. And and around that nugget, a lot of other things form, right? There's a lot of scripture about us supporting and being there for each other. But we support and be there in each other around that that strong center, that wonderful rock of blessing that is word and sacrament that's why we always talk about word and sacrament as lutheran pastors because if you don't have word and sacrament guess what you don't have a church you can call it church so that's when we would say if you don't have word and sacrament you have been growing up unchurched and and here he is saying that's not really the the stuff the stuff is the friendships you have authentic Friendships. And what's ridiculous about this is which is going to be there for you when you need it? Are Even your, your very best friend, your most authentic friend, can they let you down? Can they fail you? Well, of course they can because they're sinners. And and for him to say somehow, some way in, in these relationships, these authentic, righteous, good, pure relationships that you're forming, that, that's, that that can't happen. You're just setting people up to say, I, I will never have the church because I will never have this, these friendships or, I, or, I, or, or I'm going to play at it and I can never let my friends down. And so I have to kill myself pretending to be someone I, I'm not. As Lutherans reading scripture, we say, if, if, if what makes the church is us, the church will fail. But if what makes the church is God and his gifts, it will never fail. But he's already given statistical evidence. I mean, research shows, and then he's talked about Vita. Well, I, what do you think about this, Vita? Oh, this story is so weird to me because it, it is so light on detail. So he has the name, and, and the name came in real late, Vita. And then all of a sudden we get Vita McKenzie. So we're, get, we're getting a, a picture painted that this is an actual story from an actual place in an actual time. But it is utterly bizarre. 
Who puts somebody in a wheelbarrow? So this is before automobiles? Well, I mean, Haitians, you know. I mean, well, you know, Vita McKenzie, famous Haitian name. Yeah, I get it. And you go there and you're going to find 500 Vita McKenzie's in the phone book. I get it. What I'm saying is he he's presenting this story, but he's being he's actually being very cagey. I heard a story. Right. And I'm going to tell it to you. Right. And but see, I, you, you, I'm going to stop you right there because I don't want to get emails and letters. You know, I mean, you cannot. When somebody tells a story like this and it is so moving and so profound, you can't begin to go back and deny the details. You just can't. It's, it's like a, you know, a, a mortal sin. Don't don't steal the joy that this story gave me by telling me whether it's true or not. He is making a very bold claim about faith healing, but without any of the particulars you would need. Who's the pastor? What's the church? Where is this at? I would like to. T- I I would lo- if this is happening. I would love to talk to Vita McKenzie and find out about it. Really, all this is is a retelling of the biblical story of these friends who brought the man to Jesus. And once again, the punchline isn't Jesus forgives your sins, which is the Lutheran punchline for why for that story. It's you need to have friends that'll tear a roof. Right. Vina McKenzie most likely is is dead and with the Lord. My my guess is is he heard this growing up. We've already heard that he's a PK. He heard this along his life. And you know, the reality is this happened a long, long time ago. Well, the story was created a long, long time ago. That's what I mean. And so did the friends that Vita McKenzie had, did they help her when it came time for her to die? And see, that's what we're missing. We're yeah. missing the reality of what sin does and the reality of death. And that is through Jesus Christ, not through friends. Right. So that that is the primary thing is the even Jesus says my healings aren't the thing and he's trying to say the healings are the thing. This life is the thing. The friends you get here are the thing. Not true. Not true. Not true. But it's also very perverse to we he has a he has a a version of this that's true. Friends bring a man and lower him to Jesus. Jesus forgives his sins, and then to prove that the forgiveness of sins is the big thing, he says, all right, I'll tell him to take up his mat and walk, right? And he says, yeah, 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 take up your mat and walk. (laughs) That's the thing. It's like, Jesus didn't say that. When he told that story, was he like, we need to celebrate that. Let's clap, right? But when he tells his his story, because all of a sudden it's like, the Bible's one thing. But now, sure. you know, here's faith sure. healing today. Yeah, let's let's. The soft let, music was not playing during the retelling of Jesus. Well, isn't Jesus that something? I, I'm the word of God isn't enough. And in fact, the word of God isn't what gets you excited. It's my Vita story that mm-hmm. gets you excited. And re, he's really saying, Scripture's good, but I need the secret sauce is Vita or you know all these other analogies that we can use. We know the story of Jesus and that paralytic is real. Why does that not drive us to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and praise the Lord that he forgives the sins of people? 
Why, why is that not enough? Because Jesus was saying in this story, it's enough. But then you're absolutely right. I mean, you take him before this, this preacher, and it is, it's, it is stunning and bold. And I don't know that I would ever be bold enough to do it, but it's not in our habit to do it. I, 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 you know what I would be stunning and bold enough to do? Forgive her sins, Lord. <laughs> I would always be stunning. To, I would always be bold enough to do that because that's what I've been called to do. Nowhere have I ever been called to heal someone in a miraculous way as occasionally happens in scripture and quite occasionally, not very often. And yet here's this man. And he says, rise up and walk. I don't know why it didn't work the first time. That's interesting. But you know, we, we had to get the emotional juices going, whatever sure. it might be. We had to make it more yeah. genuine and righteous, I right. guess. Right. And then he says it the second time, right? And she gets up and walks. It would have almost been more amazing if she had just died then because we could say, beat is with the Lord. I mean, assuming Vita's a Christian. I'm yeah, assuming yeah, she is. Yeah. So, and you're like, her children need her. Well, what about what about the, the mothers that have died and their children need them? Guess what? The church provides. It, it's not the same. But we keep pointing those kids to saying, you'll see your mom again. God's promises can't be broken. And his promises of this life are that I'll, I'll give you blessings, but they're fleeting. The promise of eternity is... I'll add all the all the loss back to you and magnify it and and not magnify the loss, but magnify what was lost and it'll be greater and it'll be eternal. And why do these preachers keep staking their sights on today only? Again, I, I'm the I, I'm a very firm believer because the scripture says so, trusting in the Lord and following his tenets and everything that the Bible teaches, having that be a part of your life makes your life today so much richer. But a huge chunk of why my life is better because I'm a Christian is because I don't value this life any more than what for what it is, which is a brief time in a veil of tears and eternity waiting for me. You can attend all the church services you want and still lack the transformational relationships that bring true joy. And listen, God did not design us to merely attend a church service. He did not design us to become some superficial Bible experts with no relationships. God wants us to be a part of a community that will see each of us through to wholeness. And that's what I believe that LifePoint Church is all about. We are a family. We are a family. We're a family that fights for each other. We're a family that goes out of our way and inconveniences ourselves for the sake of other people. We talk all the time about what it means to reach unchurched people and miss the very question, do we ourselves even know what it means to be churched? I mean, listen, it's the blood of Christ that heals, amen? We sing songs about it, but the blood flows through the body of Christ. And who is that body? You are, you are the body. And simply not enough to have superficial relationships anymore with people. And just that just happen to be Christians, maybe just happen to attend, attend the same church service. It, it has to be real. If we don't have enough intimacy and vulnerability to confess our sins on a regular basis, then the very, we're missing the very foundation of biblical teaching. So right now, I have this sense that some of you in this room today, and they're just areas of your life you simply haven't been dealing with. I actually think that God may be calling some of you to get with someone today 
And I'm actually going to give you a challenge. At some point today, it doesn't need to be in this room, but at some point today, get with another person that you trust and confess your sins to them. And others of you in this room, maybe you just feel like, like I did. Maybe you're that isolated, bitter millionaire sitting eight rows back in a service with no connection and no relationship and no accountability and you haven't been vulnerable with your life and you simply are confused and desperate for help. Listen to me, church. God can do anything. And right now, if you simply reach out to him, I believe that many of you are gonna experience a miracle right in this moment. Wherever you're at, listening online, at that campus or in this room, I believe that God has a miracle for you. I believe some of you in, in this room today that you need to actually accept Jesus into your life and have a personal relationship with him. I believe that joy and peace is found in the simple act of surrender. I think some of you in this room, one more, you have great Christian community. You have great relationships with other believers but I believe that God is calling you to see isolated, lonely people and invite them into a place of true transformation. I believe that you are the access to their healing. I believe right now that God brought you to Life Point this weekend to experience his power. So if you would, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, the moment of just trusting God with our life. Maybe you're the person that needs to accept Jesus into your heart. Maybe you're a person who needs to step out of isolation into transformation and deal with shame issues in your life, secret sin struggles, whatever it is. Maybe you connected with my story as a 10-year eating disorder. It just locked me out. There was no freedom in my life. Maybe you connected with the part of being isolated and lonely. Whatever it is for you, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to meet you right where you're at. We serve a God who loves you and cares for you. I believe in this room, online, wherever you're listening, it's time for a reset for many people. You've lived far from God. You've isolated yourself on purpose. And God is calling you to make a reset. God is calling you to take a step into ownership today. Whatever it is for you, let's just, in your own way, in your own heart, let's just pray. Pray to God and pray with me right no, now. No, no, Father, no, no, I no. Thank this you. guy does not get to pray for us. So, what'd you think? Well... This has been a long journey. Yes, it has. But this is a very interesting sermon because he keeps coming up with almost uniquely bad things to say as we go on. And it's challenging and they need to be confronted because there's that like half truth stuff going on or, you know, 5% truth and 95% lie. Um, you cannot have a good sermon where the only thing you can say about Jesus is that his, his blood is, is your life. Uh, but, but let's run past that really quick and talk about how that lifeblood flows through us. That's one of those half truths. That is a good picture of the, of the communion of God's saints gathered around an altar in church. But the heart that pumps that blood that keeps us bound together is the forgiveness of sins. And this is the piece that's completely missing from this sermon. I, I don't think we heard forgiveness even once, even though he was telling us to confess, 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 confess. Come clean, come clean, come clean, come clean. Well, guess what? 
sometimes you come clean and you just go to jail, right? There, there's a confession that's like, yeah, and you're going to get punished. That's what's stopping people's mouths from talking. It's this, it's the shame, it's the guilt, it's all of these things. And so he's accurately diagnosing at least a portion of the problem. But to say that having good friends that you can talk to about this stuff is the solution instead of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ won on the cross and proclaimed to you the performative word, you are forgiven of your sins. Even that particular sin, which is weighing you down like a millstone around your neck, which you think, I cannot bring this to Jesus because it's too much. And he says, it's not. It never will be. I died for the sins of the world and I died for that sin too. That would be the way to finish this sermon. It would at least partially redeem a lot of the garbage. But instead it becomes, what does it do? And this is such an evangelical move. All right, I just talked to you about stuff and, and I've told you a story and I hope that story moved you, right? That's interesting. And so now I'm going to just kind of lay a giant, oh, you see that millstone around your neck? Let me lay, Let me lay another burden on you, another millstone on you that not only are you struggling with a sin that you don't want to talk about, but now you have the guilt of, man, and now I'm not talking about it still. You're in isolation and you don't know how to get out because I mean, what help has he given him to do? There's nothing genuine in this. It's heartbreaking because these people are going to leave and they're going to feel good and, and they're going to grab a little kernels to, to hold on to. Uh, but I think at the end, because I think you do leave feeling good from a sermon like this because it's like, because he, he bumps you up, right? But if you think about what you've been tasked with even a little bit during the week, you're going to say, I don't have anybody in my life I trust to talk to about this stuff. I don't know what my life of service could be. I'm stuck with a miserable job, maybe a miserable marriage, miserable everything, right? I mean, this things aren't working. Right, and but this is, again, the call to get back on the dream team. Yeah. If you get on the dream team, you'll not only be serving the Lord, but you'll also be hanging out yeah. with some wonderful people who can be authentic in your life and you be authentic in theirs. But now they're just going to be fake about being authentic. And there's nothing more authentic than just being able to say, I'm a sinner forgiven by Jesus. So if somebody is in a church, Pastor Oakry, that is hearing things like this, what do you tell them? Well, you, you say what the scripture says, flee, flee false teaching, flee things that would pull us away from Christ. And and this is that level of bad. This is providing a picture of what the church is that is Christless. If you're being told to stay in a Christless church, you say no, I need to go to a church where there's Christ. But what if they're on the dream team? I mean like uh, Then you say then you well, you know, you just say I don't want to be a part of the dream team anymore. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> like you didn't sign a contract, you're a volunteer. You just say, yeah, I've got some obligations here, but you you run away. And, and maybe maybe the very first thing you don't do is run away. Maybe you try to talk to some people in the organization and say, I feel like what we're hearing is not good. Because I, I do want people to, you know, you, you do have a church. And, and, and I'm not saying that this place is completely devoid of Christ. Clearly, Christ is proclaimed there in a very watered down way. And certainly, Christ is not the point. And that's, that's the problem. He's saying, like, why can't Christ be the point? Just ask that the question. Why can't Jesus' death on the cross be the point? I'm, I'm not optimistic that the staff would be interested in making that change because how do you motivate people? What motivates people more? 
guilt and stick and you need to be transformed because you're not transformed. And this is this weird thing that you see in evangelical churches all the time. You personally are not transformed, but this is a transformed church. And so it's even worse. It's not like we're all in this together. It's this church has got its stuff figured out. You're the problem. Hear that. I mean, this is what this guy just said. This church is authentic. And you're sitting there and he's just like, but he just told me that I'm not, I don't have authentic relationships. So the church is authentic. So, so my whole question is, who is he preaching to at this point? I don't know. It's one of those really sad things we can do because he's giving really pointed law with no gospel. But the pointed law is pointed somewhere else all of a sudden. He's like, everything I said doesn't apply to you. Or if you think it does, then you're messed up and, and you're alone because this church is good. I love being able to say to my parishioners, I'm messed up. You're messed up. The person sitting next to you, we're all messed up, right? The church is a, is a hospital and you don't find well people in a hospital. If you go to a hospital trying to find well people, that's real dumb. And if you go to church trying to find people that have it all figured out spiritually, that's real dumb too. If we had it all figured out spiritually, we wouldn't need to go to church. We just be okay. And I don't, it's, it's, I, it just depresses me. It just depresses me because I do know that God is preserving faith, even in the most dire of circumstances. Uh, God is powerful and good, and there is faith. But what this man is preaching is actively working against the faith that God would have us, which is faith in Jesus Christ. At no point has he says, trust in Jesus Christ. What he has said is, trust in your friends. Your friends will fail you. Jesus never will. Well, there you go. Pastor Oakry, somehow or another, we've taken a 34-minute sermon, and we have turned it into a three-hour podcast, which I love. I love the long play. I don't know what it is about uh, these people that tell me that uh, it should be as long as it is for me to run on the treadmill. I take it to be, listen, push play for us and uh, you can paint your house, and you you, never, <laughs> you will get great things done right, if you listen to this right, podcast from beginning to right, end. Right, yeah. right. And there's no commercials. I mean, for crying out loud. Yeah. I had a seminary student actually say to me one time, uh, you know, the length of these podcasts are so long. You know what I told him? What'd you tell him? Get your own podcast. <laughs> so, That's good. so there it is. There's the music, folks. And uh, thanks for uh, listening. I hope you learned something. We'll pick it up again next time. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the plucked chicken. 